Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash Creepscast12 and use code Creepscast12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. And Audible. To take advantage of today's incredible limited time offer, go to Audible.com slash Creepscast. Hello everyone, I hope all is well. Summertime is upon us and the weather is heating up, but these stories are still guaranteed to give you chills. Let's all take a chill pill and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Nature has rules and it's best to follow them. Written by The River Poet There's so much to see in the mortal world. But there are ties between it and, unfortunately, inevitable other dimensions. He started without looking at me. Then he carried on, his voice having an undertone of wariness. Be kind to the ocean. Treat it as if it were your closest friend, and you were right beside them on their dying bed. Be gentle when its waves roll by. Have fun in them. Don't swim too fast. It'll assume you want to play a game that you don't want to know of. Don't throw things. It might be small objects considering just how huge the mass of salty water is. But trust me on this one. Don't kick the sand. You don't want to disturb the beings that find comfort just a short distance from the surface. Give it back its seashells. Only some humans know why, and the ocean was merciful enough to let them survive. Talk to it. God knows how lonely it gets being trapped and constantly drowning. You might just let at least one spirit free. Don't steal from it more than it gives. Who told you that it was okay to be that selfish in the first place? Of course, the only exception are pebbles. Take only one every single time that you stay. The ocean might find you rude if you don't and it'll mistreat you next time. Unless you go further out to its deeper waters, then you pray. Don't confuse the life it hosts as the ocean itself, but that doesn't mean you should mistreat the things it sees as children either. If you follow all the rules thoroughly, you'll receive treasures further in your time here. Treasures that aren't material, just like the ocean, even if there aren't any obvious connections. The ocean teaches you patience and value, if you care enough to live. He paused for a second time, shuffling around the room slightly, Small glimmer of fondness in his eyes appeared as he carried on. 
Be carefree around the mountains. Treat them as if they're your friends from childhood. Yet, you still care for them as much as you could back then. Don't dig into the rocks farther than you need to hold on. They know they can be steep, but it doesn't give you the right to hurt them. Don't steal the rocks they keep atop them. You wouldn't want multiple hairs of your own plucked out randomly. Listen to the breeze. It whistles a unique tune for every soul that visits. Sing back to it. Don't be afraid to be loud. If it's too quiet, hum first, and it'll repeat the melody back to you. If there's snow, be gentle when tossing it back to the sky. The mountains, like these small flakes of white, just like we do. If there's too much snow, too much wind, too much sound all at once, does the snow look fake? Of course it is. That isn't snow. That's the bones of whoever dared to step foot out of bounds. And it's your turn to pray. Run. If it's a peaceful trip, look around as much as you can. If you have sight, take note of everything you hear if you are able. Take extra time to feel the mountains if you have touch. When you are back down to the level of land that you're used to, take one last look. The longest out of all when you lingered on the top. It's a common wonder you'll want to remember. The mountains teach you how to smile again and that it's going to be okay. He finished with a small smile tugging at his lips, taking a moment to reminisce. Glancing in my direction, but not directly at me, he opened his mouth as the glimmer was replaced with a subtle glare. Be careful in the forest. Treat them like they are a possession that's haunted, because that's exactly what they are. No matter how spread out the trees are, none of them in an area large enough to be considered a forest. They aren't innocent. Never stomp on the grass. The ground doesn't take more treading than it has to. Never carve anything into a tree that you didn't nourish yourself. They don't owe you anything, nor will stand pain. Don't take more berries than you need to. The forests don't tolerate any amount of loss. Don't climb fragile trees. They're too young. Don't climb rotten trees. They're already dead. Give them peace. If you want to climb, find the steadiest tree with the least sinister aura. There are rare ones that 
are willing to show you their world. Forests don't host animals. They tolerate them because they are selfish and can show them off as possessions. If you ever come across an abandoned staircase, no matter how sturdy or new or welcoming it looks, do not climb it at all costs. If you are foolish enough to climb, don't even bother praying. When you are out of the forest, don't look back, but kneel and bow with your eyes closed in front of you. After that, run. The creatures don't play games. The forest teaches you caution and mindfulness, if you have good wit. He let out a long sigh, as if just forming these sounds to communicate, the rules were causing him great pain. Taking a step forward and reclaiming his smile, his tone returned back to normal with hints of glee. Be selfish with the fields. Treat them however you want, but even they have their limits. If the first place you visit are the fields, there's a much more limited amount that you can take. Admire the flowers, but take no more than three. Sing to the open area, no matter who you are, and gains trust in giving attention. But don't have a clearly awful or too prideful attitude. The fields are close to beings with swamps and... No mortal understands how easy it is to shapeshift to things another thing is close with. But if you visited all the places I mentioned before, and in order, the field already knows who you are. And then you're free to take a bouquet of flowers. Make sure to give it to the person nearest and dearest to you, which should be yourself. Pet the small black cat that will appear seemingly out of nowhere. Shower it with attention, and it'll give you the best feeling of love if you were ever heartbroken. Perform anything you want. Let all your feelings out. Scream even. The field's treasure being trusted enough for them to be able to see your vulnerability and they would never tell a single other soul. The clouds might even form unknown beauty if you're truly special. When it's time for your departure, say your goodbyes out loud and compliment them on any feature. The fields teach you healthy amounts of selfishness and expression if you're brave enough. He pondered for a moment, wondering about what to mention next, and waved a hand dismissively, more to himself than me wanting to ask something, as he had talked once more. Be open-minded with old villages. Treat them like an old veteran from the war. You never know what they've witnessed without being able to speak. 
Now, don't bother visiting every single house. That's just pointless. But do visit the library if there is one. The village needs to let out its knowledge of events in one way or another. Read any book and it's encouraged to take at least two. Be sure to read them back home. Learn the song of the village houses. You can hear the rhythm and how the natives work. The beat and how the natives talk. The melody in which the old lady hums. Don't be loud at any point. Unless there's an emergency, which can result in the death of every soul living there. The peace will be disturbed when you come, so leave as quickly as possible. A week should be more than enough. Don't take any pictures. Ancient beauty wasn't structured nor is capable of being captured by new technology. You need to be able to feel it. To see it. Speak only when spoken to unless you need directions. If you look out of your window at night at the cabin meant for visitors and see a tall feminine figure dressed in white, then I suggest running. She is not the collector of souls, nor the embodiment of death. But I wouldn't want to test your luck by any measure. If you leave, do so abruptly. That way, the peace can be restored much quicker. The villages teach you peace and order, if you seek closure. He moved to sit on my desk, his eyes looking around the room before settling on and gazing outside the window. The lights from outside captured his inky hair in an array of colors. His eyes darkened. His speech was more hurried. A light snarl fighting to make itself present. Lastly, the city. Your home. Treat it like you always do. Throw trash at it like it doesn't leave a burn on its spirit. Get in verbal or physical fights like it doesn't make its heartache. Neglect yourself because of the society that proves itself to be not worthy of existing every second. Feel sorry for the people outside, even though you know you can do something to help. Get wasted to forget a precious understanding of the world because you think you can't handle the negativity. He stopped himself, choking back his tears but couldn't bring himself to look at me properly just yet. His voice came out as more of a whisper, some of his calmness returning. I couldn't tell you that was sarcasm fueled by anger and frustration that I couldn't help you before this. Then, check how much common sense you have. He took another deep breath in, taking his time to stand up, then to walk to me, then to lean down, and then to take my hands, holding them with care I hadn't felt before. His voice filled the room a final time. I know I should have come to the rescue earlier, 
to explain all of this more thoroughly, to warn you better. His voice thinned and quieted. So, just do me this one favor for now. The silence following the statement sent chills up my back. I had so many thoughts to organize and more ideas pouring in by the millisecond on what his favor was. But they were cut off by four very, very simple words. Don't look behind you. Support for Creepscast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Now, I know that for me personally, meal planning and grocery trips can be time-consuming and honestly sort of stressful. That's why I'm thankful that HelloFresh has helped me ditch all of the negative aspects about whipping up some home-cooked meals. And instead, it lets me focus on the best parts, all while saving a significant amount of both time and money. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit that provides you with fresh, pre-measured ingredients and an amazing array of seasonal recipes, all delivered right to your doorstep. The variety is fantastic, with more than 27 recipes to choose from each week, including everything from vegetarian and calorie-smart choices to craft burgers and gourmet options. The quality of ingredients ensures that every meal you prepare is full of flavor and is downright delicious. Just last night, I had the pleasure of preparing some mozzarella-crusted chicken with blistered tomatoes and potato wedges. And let me tell you guys, it was even better than it sounds. I can't recommend HelloFresh enough. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com Creepscast12 and use code Creepscast12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com Creepscast12. And use code CREEPSCAST12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. Thank you again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, for sponsoring today's episode. I started a job at an old warehouse. They had a list of strange rules. Written by Clanks. Last week on a Saturday evening... I was sitting with my dog on the couch. I had the TV on in the background and I sat there reading the daily newspaper. I was looking in the ad section when I stumbled upon an ad stating, in search of employees that would and will work the night shift. My eyebrows shot up in excitement. $28 an hour. Holy crap, that's good pay for a workhouse night shift job. I said as I giggled to myself. I got up and grabbed a notebook and pen and wrote down the number. I put the newspaper on the coffee table. I sat back down on my couch and I flipped to channel 54. I sat there for the next few hours, flipping back and forth through the channels, trying to find something enjoyable to watch. It's getting late. I better head to bed. I said to myself, I shut off the TV and started heading to the bedroom. I opened the bathroom mirror and grabbed out my toothbrush and toothpaste, and I began to brush my teeth. I then heard a strange noise coming from my bedroom. I froze for a second, listening, but then I started to walk into my room with my toothbrush still in hand. The noise was coming from the window. 
That's weird. Maybe it's a tree branch smacking against the window. I thought to myself. I stepped back into the bathroom. I finished brushing my teeth and then proceeded to walk back into my room. I shut off the bedroom light and laid down in bed to fall asleep. I woke up the next morning in a cold sweat. I glanced around in confusion. It almost felt like I was being watched. It didn't bother me much because I'm not the type to believe in the paranormal. So I got out of bed and headed to the kitchen. And I started making myself bacon and eggs for breakfast. I glanced at the ad again. And then took out the notebook and called the number to apply for the job. My call was answered by a nice man. Well, hello. This is the warehouse department. My name is Jack and how can I help you today? Yeah, hi. I was wondering if I could apply for the opening that you guys have. I said. Yes, you can, sir. Come down to the warehouse later today and we'll have an interview. There's no need to apply. He said in a cheerful tone. Okay, I'll be there at around 4pm. Does that sound reasonable to you? I said excitedly. Yes, it does, the man said. And we said our goodbyes and hung up the phone. It was currently 9.43am, so I had all day to get ready and to relax a little bit. I sat down on the couch and flipped on the TV. I scrolled through the channels quickly until stopping on the History Channel. I sat there most of the time until 3.30pm. It was a decently long drive to the warehouse, probably around 20 minutes, so I wanted to start driving early. I got dressed in a bright plaid button-up shirt and a pair of khaki dress pants. I grabbed my keys and headed outside to my car. I got into my car and took a deep breath, turned the key and drove off. I got there exactly on time and saw the sign reading Main Office. I parked my car as close as I could and I started walking up to the door. I got in and the cool, air-conditioned air hit me like a train. It feels nice here, I thought to myself, seeing that it was a hot, stuffy summer day here in Florida. I was greeted by the man that I had spoken to on the phone. Hey Jason, it's nice to meet you, he said. I smiled back at him and shook his hand. And nice to meet you too. He took me into a tiny office and I sat down in front of his desk. Alright, let's go over a couple of things here. He said while pulling out a folder of papers. He started asking me all kinds of questions like, How far away do you live from here? Are you physically able to run at any moment? Do you have good eyesight? And can you memorize rules and other stuff easily? They were weird questions, some that I didn't understand why they were important at all. But I simply answered truthfully, and he said, All right, you've got the job. Here are the papers you need to read over and you'll be all set. Your first shift starts tonight at 12.30. Make sure to read the paper titled Rules. It's very important. He said in a serious way. I got up and walked out of the building. I hopped in my car and set the binder that he had given me on the seat next to me and I drove home. When I got home, I took out all the papers and I started reading them. It wasn't too unusual, merely normal procedures and regulations. But then the paper he told me was the most important one had caught my attention.
It was titled, Rules. Be sure to follow these rules to the fullest and you'll be safe while working. Follow them, no matter how dumb or fake they sound. I glanced through the rules and thought, What the heck are these dumb rules for? I started reading through them soon after. Rule 1. When you arrive at the warehouse, you will be accompanied by two cars that will start following you at the entrance of the parking lot. Ignore them and walk into the main office and don't look back. If you look back and you see figures getting out of the car to the right, lock the door to the office and call us. Rule 2. Once you get into the building, the lights will be off. Turn them on quickly and make your way to the locker room. Make sure to turn on the lights in there too. Rule 3. Once you're dressed and ready to head and make your first rounds around the warehouse, go into the security office and check camera 9. This rule is rare, so you don't really have to worry about it. But if you do see something in it, grab the hammer located to the right of the monitors and smash it. Rule 4. At 1.30am, exactly, make your way back to the security office. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of something, just go. Once in there, you'll see a little girl on camera number 3. Turn it on and off five times and it should be gone. Rule 5. At 2.30am, you will hear a loud banging coming from one of the doors that go into the main floor. Quickly run up to it and bang back on it three times, and it should stop after a few seconds. Rule 6. While patrolling the basement, do not look up. Keep your eyes low, and if you do look up, run. Rule 7. If you spot a tall man with a wide smile coming toward you, don't look into his eyes. He will keep asking you, just close your eyes and wait 60 seconds and he should leave you alone. If you do look into his eyes by any chance, he will take your soul. Rule 8. If you hear a scratching noise coming from above you, do not look up. Rule 9. If you see the little girl that you had seen on the camera and she asks you to help her find her mom, tell her, not right now sweetie, I'll help you later. Once you say this, she will disappear. Rule 10. At 4.30am, exactly, descend back down to the basement. Once you're down there, you will notice that it is completely changed. Walk up to the stairs until you reach a shrine. Light the candles with the lighter that will be sitting next to them, and clap and bow your head for 10 seconds. Rule 11. At 5.30am, Make your way back to your office and lock the door behind you. This is where you will spend the rest of your shift until 6.30. If you hear loud banging noises coming from the door and voices asking you to open it, ignore them and wait until your shift is over. What the heck is this? Is it some type of joke? I thought to myself. This has to be a joke to just frighten the new guy, I said. I put down the notes and went to take a nap, not paying those dumb rules any mind. I woke up to my alarm blaring. I turned it off and I looked at the time, 12am. I got up and got ready for work, heading out the door. I heard that same noise that I had the previous night, that tapping noise at my window. But I had to be to work soon, so I just turned back around and drove off. 
forgetting all about the rules, I got there late. As I was pulling into the parking lot, I could see cars parked on either side of the entrance. That's weird. It is a bit late to be sitting out here. I thought to myself in confusion. I drove past them and before I knew it, their headlights flipped on and they started to tail me. I tried to get a good look at them through my rearview mirror and I saw nothing. I quickly checked behind me and they were there again. What the heck is going on? I said scared. I can't see them through my mirrors. I pulled up next to the office parking lot and stopped my car. They stopped with me, being a couple of feet behind my car. I was starting to get upset and I was about to get out and start screaming at them when I remembered rule number one. When you arrive, two cars will follow you, ignore them, and proceed to walk into the building. This isn't funny, I thought to myself as I got out of my car. They're taking this too far, this little dumb prank of theirs. I started to walk up the cars when the door swung open and a giant white creature hopped out. I froze for a second and then started running to the door of the main office, opening the door and slamming it shut in one motion. Banging erupted from the other side of the door. What the heck is going on here? That thing didn't look human. I said to myself as I held the door from coming off the hinges. I quickly flipped on the light and dialed the company number that was on the paper of rules. A lady answered and I started screaming. There is something trying to kill me. I had a million questions running through my head at this point. Stay calm, sir. Let me guess, you broke rule number one. She said while giggling. This isn't funny. What was that thing outside? That white tall creature? I said while trying to hold the door shut. Oh, it's the watchers. They keep the building safe from anybody trying to get in after hours. They don't know you, so they're just trying to keep the building safe, she said. Just wait a few minutes. They'll get bored and return to the entrance, she told me. But I can't hold this door any longer. I'm afraid they'll bust in if I try to move away. Sir, just calm down. That door can hold a lot more than you think, she said in a more serious tone now. I stepped away from the door and the phone hung up. The banging stopped for a while and I slumped onto the ground. This can't be happening. This can't be real. I said to myself in, in an attempt to calm myself down. I read back through the rules and decided after what I had just experienced that I had to follow them. A bunch of thoughts were still running through my head. Like what were those things? Was the lady lying to me about them because they were some sort of guard system? Wouldn't they have told them that I worked there? And what exactly was my job here? I sighed and went into the locker room. Turning on the light, I got dressed for work. My shift was about to start. I grabbed the rules and I read them again to make sure that I had them down. Whatever was going on here was true. I walked out of the locker room and checked out the barred window adjacent to the main door. The cars were gone. I had to start my shift so I stepped into the security room and I checked camera 9. There was nothing to be seen. So I began to make my rounds. The aisles of the warehouse were quiet and dark. Almost as if I was walking down a path in the forest at night. But still, I had a feeling in my chest that I was not alone. 
I strolled into the second aisle of the warehouse. It was littered with crates and packages from the right and to the left of me. I shined my flashlight onto the tall shelves, making sure no one was hiding in them. I then heard a noise coming from behind me. It sounded like footsteps rapidly approaching. I darted around and shined my dim flashlight down the long dark aisle. There was nothing there. I froze for a second, trying to make out my surroundings, and then I began back down the aisle. I was making my way to the fourth aisle when my phone began to ring. I recoiled from the sound since the dark atmosphere of the warehouse had me on the edge of my toes. I pulled it out of my pocket, still ringing. I looked down at the caller ID. It read, Brother. A flush of fear and anxiety rushed through my entire body. My brother had passed away 13 years ago. I quickly answered the phone and shouted, This isn't funny anymore. Who is this? I didn't get an answer. Only heavy breathing on the other end. It sounded like whatever was on the other side of the line had just finished running a marathon. I sat there waiting for a response for the following minute. And then the phone disconnected. I just wanted to get out of this horrible place, but I couldn't. The fear of those things that guarded the gate kept me in here. I was trapped. I took a last glance at my phone. It read, 1.30 a.m. Crap, I thought to myself, thinking of rule four. I quickly sprinted back to my office and slammed the door shut, locking it. And I flipped to camera three. My heart began to race and I got goosebumps all up and down my arms at the sight. There was a girl. She appeared around the age of four or five, standing there holding an old, beat-up teddy bear. I swiftly turned on and off the camera five times. Each time, I noticed the devilish smile that she was making. Once I had finished, she was gone. I sat down in the chair, gasping for air after all the running I had done. I collected myself a moment later and returned to the main floor and began my rounds once more. I finished up my rounds of the first part of the building rather quickly and I made my way down to the basement. As I walked down the stairs leading to the basement, I sensed a change to the atmosphere. It almost felt like I was being watched. The feeling was coming from right above me. Rule 6 while patrolling the basement, do not look up. Keep your eyes low, and if you do look up, run. I remembered and kept my eyes low. The hallways of the basement were tattered and dusty. It looked like nobody had been down there in decades. Cracks on the floor and walls. Ancient books and crates scattered around. It was completely pitch dark. The only source of light I had was my flashlight which only lit up around three or four feet in front of me. As I wandered there, I felt a constant urge to look up. It was always in the back of my mind all the way through, though. Look up, look up, look up. No, I told myself. I was making my way back towards these stairs after I had finished my round in the basement. When I rounded the first corner, I froze. What I saw in front of me was the little girl that I had seen in the camera. She was standing there with a big wide smile and holding the same teddy bear. 
but I could see it much clearer now. It appeared normal for the most part. Besides, there were a set of human eyes and fingernails as claws. I almost wanted to vomit at the sight. Hey, mister, can you help me find my mommy? She said. Her voice didn't sound human at all. It sounded demonic and evil. I worked up enough courage to yell at her from the frustration and fear that I had been through tonight. No, I can't. I'm busy right now, little girl. As I said this, she began to transform into an enormous goat-like creature and said, You broke the rule. She had an impossibly wide smile, much bigger than before. In a quick motion, she picked me up and threw me against the wall next to us. I noticed multiple pops in my chest and back, and I coughed up blood on impact. I then grunted in pain. I broke rule nine. I blacked out. As I began to wake up, I felt a sharp pain in the side and back. As I struggled to sit up, I remembered what had happened. I broke rule nine and that thing had attacked me. As I got up, I felt like I was about to pass out again. I checked my phone and it said 2.38am. I had been out for around an hour. I began to make my way up the stairs, holding my chest and back. As I got up and walked through the door, I heard a loud banging coming from across the warehouse. I took out my bloody, crumpled up rule sheet and read Rule 5. At 2.30am, you will hear a loud banging coming from one of the doors that go into the main floor. Quickly run up to it and bang back on it three times, and it should stop after a few seconds. I tried to run, but I couldn't. The pain in my chest and back was too much for me to handle, so I slowly advanced towards the sound. As I got up to it, it sounded much more intense, like it was getting more frantic by the second. I banged on it three times, but it didn't stop. I began banging harder and harder until there was a huge dent in the gigantic metal door. I slumped over onto the door, not caring anymore when, out of nowhere, it stopped. I began to cry and I asked myself why I even came here in the first place. Was it because I wanted the money, or simply wanted a new start and a new job? I sat there for what seemed like 30 minutes. And I told myself that if I wanted to get out of here, I had to finish all of my tasks. I got up and made my way to the second part of the building. As I got up to the door, a foul odor came from the building. It was the worst smell that I had ever smelled in my life. I threw up onto the cold hard floor below me. It smelled like death, like something had been rotting in here for months. I plugged my nose with my fingers and I used my other hand to hold the flashlight. Still in intense pain, I stumbled down the first aisle. After finishing it, I went to the next and then to the next and so on. Once I had finished my rounds, I glanced at the clock. 3.26am. I then made my way to the last part of the building. While walking there, I heard a strange scratchy noise coming from above me. I stopped in frozen fear. I looked up to see what the noise was and I wished that I didn't. Two large, bright red eyes were looming above me. I started running, adrenaline rushing through me. I had forgotten all about my injuries. 
I was about to get to the door when a tall man rounded the corner. He had a red suit on and dark dress pants. I stared up at his face by instinct, and what I saw gave me goosebumps. His face was blank and pale. The only facial feature he had was a long pointy tongue coming from where his mouth was supposed to be. I stopped for a second and began to run once more. I had two things chasing me. I got to the door and I slammed it shut. Locking it and loud banging erupted from the other side. I looked around and spotted an exit. I gotta get the heck out of here. I said to myself in an exhausted and painful tone. I rushed over to the door, swinging it open, and I continued out. The humid air hit me like a train as I bolted towards my car. And then the two cars that had followed me into the parking lot turned on their headlights and began approaching me. I got to my car and I checked my pocket. My heart sunk through my chest and I realized something. I had left my keys in my locker, in the locker room. I ran up to the door trying to open it, but it was locked. It was still locked from when I had locked it earlier tonight. I turned around and rushed into the woods next to the building. I ran for ten minutes until I stopped to catch my breath. I gasped for air, and the pain in my chest was so intense that I wanted to vomit. I needed treatment because I was losing a lot of blood from a deep cut that I had on my lower back. I limped to the local emergency room, which was about a 20 minute walk from here. I arrived at the emergency room, stepped in, and collapsed on the hard tile floor. I could hear running and screaming all around me as my eyes closed and my vision faded to black. I woke up to the sight of a bright light shining from the ceiling. It took a moment for my eyes to adapt to the room. I was in a hospital room, lying down in the bed with all kinds of IVs and tubes sticking in me. I heard the sound of a woman saying, He's awake. A huge crowd stormed into the room, and they began asking all sorts of questions as I zoned out. Reality finally set in, and I remembered what had happened at that warehouse. I couldn't tell them what happened, no one would believe me, so I made up a story. I said that I was attacked while taking a midnight stroll around town. The police showed up and took my statement. It's been a few months since all this has happened, and I still have nightmares about that place. At night, I still hear that tapping. And once I got a good look at what caused the noise, it was the tall man that I had encountered at the warehouse. I went on an expedition to the Titanic. I'll never set foot in the ocean again. Written by Tsar Slavian. I guess you could say I was a weird kid. I went through a lot of obsessions in my early life. Phases where I would become obsessed with a topic for a couple of months and learn everything I possibly could about it until inevitably something else would catch my attention and I would move on. When I was around 10 years old, at a school book fair, a book with a large ship on its cover caught my eye. 
After glancing over the first few pages, I decided I would use the $10 that my parents had given me to spend at the fair on this one single book. Reading it would cement my fanatical interest in the ship that decorated the cover, the Titanic. Over the next couple months, I would devour and be able to regurgitate from memory countless facts about the ship, from the time that it was being built in Belfast to its untimely sinking in the North Atlantic that April night in 1912. I even managed to successfully annoy my parents into renting the huge blockbuster hit that had come out about it just a few years prior and letting me watch it, albeit with them skipping over some scenes. Time moved on, and eventually I found a new topic to occupy my interests, and I largely forgot about the Titanic. Although, to this day, I do still remember several facts which once even came in handy at a happy hour trivia night when I was in school for my PhD. I did eventually grow up, and I became a far less obsessive person, finding just one interest to occupy my time and eventually blossom into my career, microbiology. I had studied it in college and decided to go to graduate school for it, and I'm currently a professor at a relatively impressive private university, which I will leave nameless for privacy's sake, and I am able to pursue my passion with the relatively light compromise of having to lecture often hungover students about basic microbiology. I was working from home one night as my wife was preparing dinner, when I got a call from a colleague at a different university who I have collaborated with before. Again for privacy, I've altered our names. Matt, I said answering the phone. Hey Dennis, how you been? After a couple of minutes of exchanging pleasantries, Matt got to the reason that he called. I'm about to conduct a study to see what kind of bacteria tend to inhabit shipwrecks. There are a lot of sites for us to handle, and I won't be able to analyze all the samples on my own. Would you want to help out? I understand that to the general public, anything that could come out of that study would be the equivalent to a couple sleeping pills. But for us, though, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, of course, I answered. Just let me know when you ship the samples my way and I'll keep an eye out for them. There was a pause afterwards. Well, actually, we would have to go in person. It's a few wrecks, some classical age stuff in the Mediterranean, some World War I vessels in the Baltic. I did get approval actually today for the Titanic, which I wasn't expecting. Dennis continued to drone on and on about how he had to fill out countless forms and basically learn to speak Lithuanian in order to complete the necessary paperwork. But all I could notice is that my curiosity had been piqued. I hadn't thought about the Titanic in a long while, but an opportunity was presented for me to visit the site itself. I agreed. The next few months were relatively busy with all the preparations needed to go on these expeditions. First, it was a lot of reading on bacteria native to these sites that we were visiting, as well as what previous studies of a similar nature had discovered. Then, there were also the protocols on operating with submersible vehicles that we would be in. I was told that I was learning all of this mostly for emergencies, 
As these submarines would all be manned by someone with two decades of experience in doing so. Before I knew it, I was saying goodbye to my wife and flying from North America to Ukraine, where the vessel was currently stationed. I met Dennis in the port city of Odessa, where we spent a day catching up and comparing what pre-existing literature we found on the topic. The next day, we went to the docks to check out what we would be floating home for the next few weeks. The boat itself wasn't the most modern, but it wasn't exactly outdated either. It had decent enough facilities for all of us, including our own private rooms, as well as a place to prepare food and laboratories. The owner of the boat, who also happened to be the captain, was a Ukrainian guy named Andrei. His English wasn't the best, but he knew enough to be able to communicate, and honestly, most of his communication was done through his facial features. You could always tell what he thought of what was being said by his eye rolls or his smiles. We were also accompanied by a couple of technicians, mostly Ukrainians and Russians, who spoke no English. They were mainly responsible for the maintenance on the vessel, as well as the two submersible vehicles, able to fit three persons each. The first three weeks were simple enough, uneventful to the point of being boring honestly. We showed up to the sites of the wrecks and descended in the submersibles, and managed to acquire enough samples from the wrecks as well as surrounding water to see what would grow on algar plates back in the lab. After dealing with our last sight in the Baltic Sea, our course was set. The North Atlantic, almost 400 miles off the southern tip of Newfoundland, to the wreck of the Titanic. It took a couple of days for us to get there, which were mainly passed by drinking hard liquor in amounts that I hadn't seen since college, and by playing cards, which was interesting when we couldn't fully communicate with everyone due to the language barrier. We reached the coordinates closer to the evening, and it was decided that we would go down to the wreckage first thing in the morning. As we were getting ready that night, Dennis had received an email from a colleague of his to have a video chat. Assuming that this was going to be something microbiology related, Dennis asked me to join in. The first few minutes of talking with his colleague went about as expected. He was very friendly and mainly it was just some introductions and small talk between the three of us, with her asking how our field work was going so far, and Dennis asking how everything was going back at the university at home. Nothing too out of the ordinary. And then the smile began to vanish from her face. Listen, she said, I heard you guys are going down to the Titanic. That's right, Dennis replied. I've never been there myself personally, but I know people who have. Some people who've gone down there a few times. It's theirs. Listen, just do me this favor. Don't spend more time than you have to out there. What? I had asked confused. Just trust me on this. Don't spend too much time down there. And promise me, please promise me that if you think you see something moving... Don't look. Dennis and I were both dumbfounded. Was this some sort of joke? I, I don't understand, Rose. Dennis started. I can't explain it myself. Like I said, I've never been down there. 
I just know people who have. Just be safe down there. It's way deeper than all the other wrecks you guys have gone to. And it's way far out from everything. Be safe. Okay, we'll be fine. I'll see you back at the lab in about a week. And with that, Dennis signed off. We exchanged glances. There was no doubt between us. That conversation had taken a very weird turn. Dennis appeared to be a little shaken, but made some comment under his breath that Rose was very smart, but also had a reputation of being a bit eccentric. We went to the dining table and passed some time playing cards with Andre and the maintenance team. The next morning, I met Dennis and Andre on the deck as we made our way into the submersible. It was slightly cramped for three people, but it made a little sense to take down both just to have some more legroom. With the three of us inside, the vehicle began its descent down. It did become slightly unnerving. All the past wrecks were not so deep that there wasn't at least a little bit of sunlight. But here, after some point... It was pitch black. We turned on the lights both inside and outside the submersible, and after some more time, it appeared. The bow came out of the darkness, just as it did in all the pictures and movies that you've probably seen. It nearly took me by surprise. I was so enamored by the darkness that I forgot that we were visiting a wreckage site. But there she was, the Titanic. Never not even in my wildest dreams as a ten-year-old reading every Titanic book I could get my hands on, did I think that I would ever be able to see the wreckage for myself. The romanticism of the moment faded, as I remembered the reason we were there, collecting wreckage and water samples. We started at the very tip of the bow and worked our way down the wreckage. We scraped off some of the rust and organic material that had accumulated on the railings, as well as samples of water right around the rack. As we were making our way towards the back of the wreckage, I saw Andre turn his head with a confused look on his face. Neither of us said anything, but at some point, Andre shrugged his shoulders and we continued on with our work. We kept making our way to the back, and at least twice, I saw Andre turn his head and appear to look out into the darkness. Is something wrong? I asked. Dennis turned so that we were both facing Andre while he was able to look past us out towards the wreckage. It's nothing. I just... Andre stopped mid-sentence. We stared at him, waiting for him to continue on. But he just kept staring, with a blank expression on his face. I glanced over at Dennis with a worried look, one that he reciprocated. As I turned my gaze back at Andre... His eyes got wide, and he screamed. Andre had a deep and booming scream, and the fact that we were in a tiny enclosed metallic space made his scream echo all the more painful. As Dennis and I jammed our ears shut with our hands, Andre lunged forward, grabbing a hammer from the always open toolkit, and smashed the light switch repeatedly. The lights were out, and we were in pitch black darkness. And Andre finally stopped screaming. It was eerily quiet, and the fact that we couldn't see anything only made it that much more unnerving. But Matt, Dennis stuttered, 
I'm here. Andre. There was no response. Andre, we need to get back to the surface. Please, can you do that for us? I asked. No response. I could feel Andre's presence there. Obviously, there was nowhere for him to go. But still, I got no response. Andre, please. I felt him stir a little bit and move in the direction of the control board. I heard him start to fumble around. He was probably having issues due to the darkness. As we were waiting for something, anything to happen that could convince us that this wasn't going to be our resting place as well, we felt something ram into the submersible, forcing two different expletives out of both Dennis and I. We heard Andre continue to fumble around with the controls. Please, we need to get out of here, Dennis said, his voice breaking with fear and desperation. Please. Again, the submersible shook as something unseen rammed into it. Dennis's voice was breaking with tears, as was mine, as we pleaded Andre to do something to get us out of there. As we heard a tapping coming from all possible sides of the submersible, we also heard a familiar and comforting sound. That of the vehicle ascending. It went slower than we remembered it at the other racks. Now, I'm not sure if it was because the submersible was actually damaged, or if it just seemed that way because we were so scared. Not too much longer, we were able to see clearly again, as we had reached shallow enough water that the sun's rays were able to reach us. As I was beginning to appreciate my newly found ability to see once more, Dennis screamed. I turned my head to see what he was screaming at, and when I saw it too, I couldn't help but scream myself. Andre was dead. As I looked away to avoid looking at Andre's body, I saw something else that made my stomach drop. Handprints. All over the vehicle's front window, large and small ones, covering nearly every single inch. Eventually, we reached the surface of the water and we were retrieved by Andre's crew. After they saw what had happened, it was a frenzy on the boat. As soon as I had stepped out of the submersible and onto the boat, I vomited. Once I finished, I looked back at the submersible to see that every inch of it, not just the windows, were covered in those handprints. Despite being drained, I had to be the one who was in communication with the Canadian Coast Guard since Dennis had locked himself in his room, and none of the crew spoke English. The Canadians were able to send someone over to pick up Dennis and I the next day, after which we never spoke again. I tried to see what information I was able to pick up about Andre, as I was sure an autopsy would be carried out on what appeared to be an otherwise healthy and middle-aged man. It took some digging, but I found that his death had been ruled back in Ukraine as what appeared to be a stress-induced heart attack. We never analyzed the data that we got from all those racks, although I did work up the courage to open these samples that we did retrieve from the Titanic and characterize those bacteria that were present. For the most part, the bacteria that were found were what would be expected in deep, cold and frigid water. Although, as I was going through the data, I did notice that the samples that we had acquired as we went further along the wreck of the Titanic started to have increasing levels of bacteria 
that are typically present in another environment. They were bacteria that are typically associated with decaying bodies. I hope you guys are enjoying today's stories. Before we move into the next one, I would like to talk about today's sponsor, Audible. As the temperature starts to rise and summer begins to fully set in, one of my favorite things to do is take long drives on those chill summer nights. Nothing allows me to zen out more than listening to a good audiobook while I'm coasting along empty roads. With so many amazing stories and programs, Audible becomes my perfect summer partner. Not to mention that now is the absolute best time to sign up for Audible, because Prime members can save 53% off your first 4 months. That's only about $6.95 a month, and trust me, you get a lot of bang for your buck with this deal. With Audible, you can listen to more of what you're into, because Audible has it all. An incredible selection of audiobooks, podcasts, and exclusive originals. You'll be able to find the perfect selection for whatever you're doing this summer. Whether it's a road trip, a lazy beach day, a long bike ride, or just a barbecue in the backyard. Get more out of summer with Audible. To get started for yourself, visit audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Again, that's audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. My friends and I visited an abandoned strip mall. We now know why it was deserted. Written by Weird Bryce Guy This epistle area account was found in the parking lot of an abandoned strip mall by a group of teenagers. They brought it to a police station, believing it to be something worth money, considering the obviously old parchment on which the letter was written. Unsure of its value, the officers handed it over to me, the town's humble historian, and I've transcribed the odd, fantastical account for you here, omitting nothing. There were six of us at the start of the day, my friend, a guy named Ted who was obsessed with exploring abandoned and derelict places, found an old strip mall outside of town, one that had been abandoned after a fire started in one of the stores and spread to the others, destroying the entire stretch. And despite the loss of employment suffered by the nearby community, it hadn't been rebuilt or completely torn down and built over Something had stopped the community from tending to the ruins, so the land was left alone, dark and ashen, forsaken even by our town's local government. They had somehow suppressed news of the fire in the days after, for a reason that I wished I hadn't found out. Ted, upon discovering this gem of ruin, immediately told us about it and insisted that we all visit. He had said that we needn't worry about violating any trespassing laws because of the aforementioned communal neglect. No one, he assured us, cared about the half-collapsed line of buildings. There were never any cars parked in the weed-invaded lot. 
having nothing else to do on a Thursday night. We quickly agreed to explore the site, even though none of us had any belief that we would find anything interesting. We had all heard that the place had been plundered of any items that had survived the fire in the first week following the destruction. We were sure that the best we would find would be a scorched t-shirt, or maybe a creepily carbonized mannequin. We of course found such things, items reduced to charred remnants of their former selves, but we also found something worse, something both alive and dead. Even though it was unlikely that we would be noticed, we went at night, parking on the street opposite the lot, and crossing by the guidance of the moon's light, which shone freely and totally over the cracked and dilapidated lot. It was totally vacant. No cars rested within the half mile of trash-littered blacktop. I wore a black hoodie, dark jeans, and black boots, and almost everyone else dressed the same, with the exception of Jeff, stupid Jeff, who had worn a white t-shirt and green shorts. Jeff didn't last long, but things went south. We crept into an ordinary clothes store at first. It was the least destroyed, despite being situated not far from the initial site of the conflagration, a copy and print shop. The store's walls had been blackened by the heat but hadn't fallen. A few posters even remained, albeit melted to the surfaces, their designs and words unintelligible. The counters were in similar states, blackened but otherwise sturdy. The clothes that were on the racks, however, had all been burned away, and the floor was littered with the remains of shoes and whatever else the store had sold. As expected, there was nothing of interest to be found, so we left and went into the next door to our left, closer to the place where the disastrous blaze had been born. The next door, some sort of electronic shop, had suffered greatly in the disaster. The wall that connected it to the next door in the leftward sequence was utterly destroyed, as if something affixed to it had exploded. Shelves and counters had been blasted away, and only a few scraps of plastic had survived the tempest. Unusual pieces of electronics and gadgetry, nothing salvageable. Disappointed by the lack of loot, but awed at the level of destruction, we climbed over what was left of the blasted wall and crossed into the next door, a perfume and cologne shop. Despite the fire which had raged through, the scents of the product still lingered, even amidst the stench of burnt plastic and whatever had comprised the walls. The chemically engineered scents were prevalent. It was as if the heat had intensified the pleasant and unpleasant smells to an almost olfactorily obnoxious potency. Images of salesmen and women simultaneously filling the air with spray samples flashed into my mind as I waded through the veritable atmosphere of perfume. The next door was a game shop, one with which I was very familiar, having been there several times back before I converted to digital media. Melted clumps of plastic, the fused remains of game cases littered the floor, blackened slag-like mounds that smelled terrible. The heat had done awful things to this room, 
transforming the once colorful hype-inducing space into a nightmarish heap of flame-scorched ruin. As expected, we found nothing worth scavenging, and doubted that anything of value had even survived the blaze. It was here that things began to go terribly wrong. While sitting on a charred counter, leafing through a barely legible magazine he had found within a box beneath the counter, my friend Adam was suddenly draped in darkness, as if a veil had been thrown over him, preventing the moonlight from shining on that particular area. The localized darkness was total. Adam simply vanished from sight. He had been talking about an up-and-coming game which he had seen an ad for in the magazine, so all of us had been looking at him when he vanished. Jeff, not sensing the impending danger, perceived Adam's vanishing as something cool and rushed to the endarkened spot, presumably to also encompass himself in the eerie absence of light. When he reached the spot, he disappeared as well. And despite the then inexplicable nature of disappearances, we all felt compelled to follow, sensing, with that inner, usually dormant animal sense, that our friends were in grave danger. One by one, the rest of us stepped into the lightless space, I was the last to enter, and that same sense which had warned me of my friend's certain doom also impelled me to hesitate. It would have made me retreat entirely, but I was determined to help my friends, so I stepped into the darkness. I should have left them all behind and gone home to some semblance of sanity and safety. The dark space had turned out to be a portal, a lacuna in our reality some dimensional oversight that had been lazily covered up aeons ago by spatial patchwork. Patchwork that was undone by the violence of the fire. Or maybe the seal had at some point been sturdy, solid, but was over time weakened by something from the other side. Something that had chipped away at it, century after century. And the fire had simply peeled away the last flimsy layer. I don't have the answers. I haven't learned the mechanics behind this nightmare. I just know that presently, I'm trapped here and can only hope that my message reaches someone, somewhere. Despite its tenebrous portal, the space beyond the threshold of darkness was not devoid of light. I saw my friends illuminated clearly beneath a rusted chandelier, one that had probably been beautiful many millennia ago, but was now a faded shadow of its former self. There were eight stems which curved from the central structure, but only four of the sconces held candles that burned. It was still impressive that those four had remained lit throughout the unknowable cycles, the flames subsisting on the stale air, tirelessly casting their light to an unoccupied room. The room in which we had unwittingly entered was scarcely furnished and ostensibly built into some subterranean domain. The walls were bare rock, as was the floor in areas that weren't covered by thick crimson rug, which extended from the site of our arrival into a rocky corridor beyond. The corridor was lined with white crosses, which increased in size as you neared the end of the corridor. We left the apparent antechamber of this otherworldly space, walking slowly along a single file, and reading the gold-plated inscriptions mounted beneath the crosses 
Initially, the inscriptions were unreadable, not due to the wearing of time but simply indecipherable from a linguistic perspective, bearing messages in languages that not one of us could begin to identify. It wasn't until we had reached halfway down the corridor that we began to recognize languages, Latin, Greek, other languages that Jeff indelicately described as some kind of European, and English eventually. As we moved forward, the process was reversed. We encountered languages barely recognizable, and then inscriptions written in words and symbols that seemed to belong to species other than ours, completely alien to anything we had seen before. But one thing all the languages had in common was the issuance of a warning, an ominous call to turn back. The message in English read, it is here the undying has been confined. Should you find yourself delving into this unhallowed place, I beseech you to turn back. If you seek death, you will not find him here. He shuns this abysmal hall as sewer rats shun the light. The Lord, even in the infinitude of his being, has conveniently forgotten to cast his light here. I do not know from what country, plant, or time that you have come, but if you are able, you must return. It is not death that awaits you, but the perversion of life. But like fools, we pressed on. We're drawn deeper into the corridor by that self-sacrificing curiosity, which always coincides with fearful experiences of the supernatural. We were certain that the other inscriptions, despite our collective monolingual inadequacy, imparted these same ominous warnings. The corridor terminated in a barred iron door, and the crosses on the walls beside it were just as tall as its seemingly impregnable frame. A bar the size of my arm prevented the door from swinging outward, though this precaution seemed like an afterthought, compared to the various sigils and ruins complexly engraved upon the door's surface. The design, if you looked at them collectively, was a sort of amalgam of greater symbols, curiously ordered groupings of sigils that were then linked together at the center to form a single massive image. It was beautiful yet foreboding, in an intense, inexpressible way. There was a sense of community about the image, the apparent result of cooperation between entities that, as wild as this may sound, were perhaps not of the same terrestrial order, not of the same species. We stared in awe at the door, momentarily forgetting the unsettlingly cryptic circumstances. We were suddenly terribly reminded of our predicament when, from behind the door, there came a voice. A single word was spoken, but intoned within this utterance were suggestions of pitiful helplessness, of incomprehensible woe. The word that was spoken was, Hungry. We were all simultaneously overcome by a sensation of unprecedented empathy, and despite having not received any sort of instruction, we began vocally undoing the almost mythical locks that had been immemorially inscribed upon the door. Somehow, we were given insight into the languages which comprised the esoteric image. I found myself reciting strings of words that I hadn't ever before uttered, haven't ever seen written or heard spoken. 
when we were as some inhuman choir speaking aloud the oftentimes rhythmic incantations, which, despite the bizarreness of it all, seemed rather harmless to us at least. There was even a warmth that swelled within me as my mouth formed these strange, entirely unfamiliar word shapes. Regardless of which language we spoke, each grouping seemed to belong to a different syntax. There was always a feeling of spirituality, a multicultural, multi-species intent towards good. It was clear when we had spoken the last of the benevolently sorcerous words that several civilizations had at some time come together to seal something abominably profane behind this door. The lines and shapes of the great image flashed blindingly, but then faded away, leaving the door's surface entirely blank and the iron bar drawn back. The door was unlocked. Jeff, emboldened by curiosity or merely stupidity, pulled back the door, revealing another smaller antechamber, though there is no hallway that separated it from another smaller door beyond. In this space, which was no larger than your average bedroom, was a simple, mottled metal chair, a wooden writing desk, and a small, floor-level cot, a single white sheet tucked neatly into the wooden frame. The walls were just like those before it, and a single sconce was mounted to each, the candles therein still burning. There is a hole in the corner of the floor, to the right of the doorway, only two feet away from the cot. Based on the dark smears around the hole, it was obvious what its purpose had been for the sole occupant of the room. The darkly robed occupant sat in the chair, slumped over the desk, its skull eerily illumined by the candlelight. Shocked speechless, or perhaps delayed in returning to the simple mode of speech with which we had been accustomed to all our lives, we silently circled around the desk. Although none of us ventured too close to the second door, which too closely resembled one befitting some ancient dungeon. The figure, the corpse slumped over the desk, was dressed in some sort of ceremonial garb or religious vestments. Their hands, just bones, rested in their lap, as if the person had simply dozed off in the middle of reading. The book beneath the desk lay in skull was unreadable, though not because of the language that was easily recognizable as English, the pages themselves had been yellowed by time. The words faded by ceaseless exposure to those inexhaustible candles, and undoubtedly by these secretions and gaseous emanations of the body's decomposition. But written upon a shadowed portion of the desk in what I hoped was ink but knew to be blood was an allegic message. Today, my vigil ends. Today, I die. I who volunteered as jailer to this wretched thing consign the horror to these walls. Though I know that they will crumble to ruin long before it fuels the slightest hint of true death, if you have breached the door and entered this room, there is a no hope for you. You have, woefully or not, forfeited your life. I suggest that you end it now, by whatever means available to you. Although, despite my ordinarily unyielding faith, I fear that only the atoms of my body will be free. I fear that my soul will remain locked in this room, without the flesh to protect it from the wickedness before me.
goodbye. But I pray that this message reaches no soul, and that my final words fade unheeded along with my bones. Ted, the one who had insisted we visit the burned out strip mall, broke the silence first. I'm, uh, I'm sorry guys, I had no idea about any of this. Claire, who had remained largely silent through the adventure turned nightmare, clutched her boyfriend's arm for comfort. But Adam was focused on something ahead of us. The closed-in shadow-steep cell a few meters away. Before any of us could ask what was wrong, beyond the obvious wrongness of our situation, Adam started to whimper. His voice came out softly, pleadingly, as if he were unintelligibly begging someone to end a long-endured torment. Claire's grip tightened, now offering comfort to the man she had sought it from, but he paid no attention to her, and even fell to his knees, defeated, still begging in an inarticulate way. None of us knew what to do, and I perhaps because I had been standing the furthest away from the cell and had a better vantage of the overall scene saw an immediate connection between Adam's sudden and sourceless suffering and the unknown thing locked within the cell. Instinctively, I retreated from Adam and, by extension, from the thing beyond, accidentally nudging my cousin, Alicia, in the process. She turned to me and then to Adam, and made the connection herself, silently retreating alongside me to the doorway behind us. Claire knelt beside Adam, futilely questioning him, while Ted and Jeff stood over them, staring dumbly at the scene. One Adam seized Claire by the throat and, in an exhibition of strength that was impressive even for a healthy guy in his 20s, threw her into the bars of the cell. Alicia and I both leapt out of the room, simultaneously sensing some dark and inimical change in the atmosphere. Ted tackled Adam to the floor, where they clumsily wrestled. The room was not large enough to accommodate such an interaction, while Jeff went to Claire's aid. I mentioned earlier that Jeff was the first to die because of his overzealous stupidity. Automatically going to help Claire was a stupid decision, yes, but one that due to his ignorance of the thing within the cell was justified. The monumentally and mortally stupid decision was remaining at the cell after helping Claire up and peering into the abundant darkness therein. Claire, somewhat dizzied by her headfirst impact against the cell bars, stumbled over to Alicia, while Ted held Adam down on the jailer's perfectly made cot. Adam, throughout the short-lived skirmish, continued to whine, only now his pleading became hysterical. Ted motioned for us to step aside, and he dragged the manic Adam out of the room, Jeff was the only one left inside. He had his face pressed against the bars, straining to see something through the darkness which somehow withstood the light thrown by the candles throughout the room. We called out to him, pleaded with him to leave the room so that we could close the door, but he waved his hand at us and said that he could almost make out something in the back of the cell. But something told me that the cell had no back, no end in the traditional sense and that the darkness was, in fact, unnatural. A thing cast off, exuded, the photic inverse of the candlelight. Jeff, either finally relenting to our pleas or simply giving up his endeavor, finally pulled himself away from the bars, or rather, 
he tried to. His body retreated a few inches, but was otherwise anchored in place by his head, which seemed to be affixed to the bars. His face wedged beneath two of the eerily lustrous poles. We all collectively silenced our voices, sensing again that some new incident of terror had arisen. Jeff lightly struggled to free himself, feigning calmness, but this act was short-lived and he soon began echoing Adam's previous frenzied behavior. The trapped man flailed about and jerked his body in a manner that had to have been incredibly painful for his neck and head. I shouted for him to stop. Claire screamed. Ted wrestled again with Adam behind us, who had once again come to life in a fit of mania. The awful, scream-silencing crack sounded louder than any other sound I had heard that abysmal night. Jeff's body hung limply at an angle from the head, which was still wedged between the ensnaring bars. From the way the body sagged, it was obvious that the life within had been extinguished, that the resounding crack had been the breaking of Jeff's neck, or perhaps the frontward collapse of his skull. No one bothered to call out. No one dared to break the silence. I would have closed the door then, would have allowed my friend's body to remain unburied within that dismal prism tomb, if it hadn't been pushed into the room from behind. I turned to see Adam's crazed face shrinking. No, before swiftly covered by the closing door. I saw Ted on the floor behind him, blood running from a wound on his head, and a bloodied flashlight rolling down the carpet. Alicia and Claire were pressed against the leftward wall, petrified by fright at Adam's sudden, monstrous act. Just before the door closed, I saw Adam turn to the shocked girls, and then silence reigned as the door completely shut, the physical and mystical locks sealing themselves. I was trapped in the jailer's room, though not alone. A long-dead corpse and Jeff's fresh body were my charnel roommates. To say that I panicked isn't exactly accurate. I was terrified, of course, but the feeling that overcame me, the bodily sensation which stiffened my limbs and clouded my mind, was less of a state of panic and more of a total spiritual depletion, an unwilling but nonetheless complete existential forfeiture. There was the certainty that I was trapped here, that even if Alicia and Claire somehow managed to overpower the hysterical and murderous Adam, they wouldn't be able to undo the door locks, locks that I somehow knew would require several voices to be undone. There was also the uncertainty regarding how long I would remain alive, not because of the entity or presence within the chamber, which I felt sure was not presently able to leave, but because of dehydration and starvation. I was vaguely aware that I could survive maybe two weeks without food, but water was a more pressing matter, and I hadn't had so much as a sip for several hours now. There in the room thankfully seemed inexhaustible, which I judged by the endlessly burning candles. Despite being only meters away from the barred door and Jeff's still slumped corpse, I felt confident that I would not face physical harm, so long as I did not enter the area immediately before it. I sat in the cot, which was unyielding to my weight, 
an uncomfortably firm surface that I couldn't imagine having slept on night after night, year after year. There was a faint stench about the air, though I wasn't sure if it was from the aging corpse or Jeff's, or from something within the cell. This, of course, inspired a new fear. The idea that I would die from choking upon the miasmal vapors of decomposition. I rose from the cot and went over to the desk, careful not to disturb the corpse, which I feared would crumble to dust at the slightest touch. I scanned the surface and then, after gently moving the corpse occupied chair aside, found a drawer. I opened it and found a journal which, like the blood-written words on the desk, was written in English. The journal detailed the life of the late jailer, which I won't diminish her disrespect by clumsily copying here. There was very little to do with the owner's present situation, which was entirely understandable. If I were in his position, willingly I should add, I'd probably want to reflect on the less horrible portions of my life as well. There was only one thing worth retelling. One section briefly covered near the end, but not at the end, uh, discussed the prospect of communication with people outside the jail's confines. I scanned this section several times, making sure that I had not misread or misunderstood the bleak pronouncement. It essentially called for a spiritual Hail Mary, a final, irreversible attempt at exodimensional contract. Here is the short passage. Should the vampire escape or achieve an animacy resembling life, the jailer may unburden himself of his own life and allow his spirit to act as a courier of his word. After saying the requisite incantation and absolving oneself of any graver than usual sins, the speaker's soul, encumbered with the necessary thoughts or messages, may traverse the outward gulfs to visit any desired locale and deliver to its people the final message of the vampire's awakening. If, however, no such event has occurred, then it is strictly forbidden to use this means of deathly communication. The incantation is written at the bottom, and due to its grim and essentially magical nature, I will not relate it. As you might have guessed by your reception of this post-humorous account, I performed the forbidden rite. Using a pen retrieved from within the same drawer, I unceremoniously punctured my neck with the steadiness of hand and peace of mind that were only possible because of the certainty that alternate phase, indefinite residency in the jail would be far worse. I staggered, leaving the pen on my neck and fell against the wall. My head nudged one of these sconces and the candle came tumbling out, falling onto the floor and rolling towards the cell. My vision blurred as the blood drained from me, and after suppressing a final animalistic desire to undo my act, I collapsed to the floor beside Jeff's corpse and the candle. Still burning, the candle cast its light into the gloom-draped cell, Somehow at this proximity, the flame's light managed to pierce the darkness, finally revealing the interior. Jeff's bar-wedged face, a meter above me, was in the process of some horrible spectral dissolution. Atom by atom, it was being drawn away towards the opposite end of the cell. The destination of the particles, a figure affixed to the far wall, 
Filthy rags or sagging blackened flesh hung from its titan-sized body, which was crucified upside down upon a sigil carved stone cross. An image not dissimilar to the one on the outside door had been drawn upon the massive wall behind the crucified figure. Although, unlike the image on the door, this image had been heavily worn by time, or the cell's assuredly unnatural atmospheric properties. As my life waned, I came to understand some of the truth, realized dimly the nature of the being imprisoned within this loathsome tomb. It was, and it still is, some kind of vampire, but one of a predatory order well beyond the folkloric entities with which we're all aware. There was a dark and dormant vitality about the thing, an essence of undeath that, though not conscious, was nonetheless powerful, spiritually potent in a way which can still induce hysteria and fits of violence in those who come into contact with it. Adam's mania was one side effect of such exposure, Jeff's bodily magnetism another. Why none of the others or myself never suffered some other fact, I do not know. Perhaps due to the unconscious and therefore unfocused exertion of power, the effects being random and direct, the ultra-resilient and undoubtedly wicked soul, merely grasping at whatever it could find to reanimate the corpse, its home. Bleeding out it takes a long time, at least longer than I would have thought. In the moments that have passed since my collapse into the floor, the vampire's body is not stirred. Jeff's face is now almost entirely absent. His glistening skull peers sightlessly towards that impartially resurrected revenant. I'm not scared anymore, I'm just tired. I doubt Jeff's body alone will suffice for the vampire's necromantic rejuvenation. I doubt any small number of victims will. For a creature that has ravaged worlds, that required the cooperation of star-crossed races to subdue and imprison, I doubt anything short of a great population would be enough. I suppose that in and of itself is a comfort, that my body following Jeff's will not sufficiently invigorate the thing. But with a morbid curiosity, I do wonder at what the creature is like when fully sated, truly alive. The sheer power must be both awe-inspiring and blackly nightmarish. This death-defying entity able to exude its vampiric influence, send forth its appalling thoughts and animus into the fragile minds who come near it. Even in death, a devil can still dream. My work the night shift at an abandoned middle school. There was a set of rules. Written by Clangs. I live in a small town named Eddersville. I have lived here my whole life. I'm 24 and living alone in a two-story apartment building. Life has always been rough for me. I got kicked out of my mom's house as soon as I turned 18 because I couldn't find any work. I've never been able to find work. I've been living from couch to couch for a few years now until I could save enough money to get the place that I currently live in now. Last week, I saw an ad in the newspaper about a job opening for a night shift at an old middle school on the edge of town. The ad read, Hiring for a night shift security guard, $35 an hour. 
I called them immediately and scheduled an interview. The guy on the phone sounded like he had been to hell and back, with a real raspy voice. Sounded like he was in his mid-thirties. Come on Monday morning at 8 and don't be late. So, that night, I did my normal stuff, brushed my teeth, took a shower, and set an alarm for 7am just so that I could be up early and wouldn't be late. I woke up to my alarm blaring in the morning. I pushed the off button and got out of bed. I went to the bathroom and washed my face and got ready. And I rushed out of the door. The clock said 7.48am. I had to take a double take. It was just 7. How did it take me 48 minutes to wash my face and get ready? Regardless, I rushed to my car and took off towards the school. When I pulled up, there is a real eerie feeling coming from the building. Most people stay away from it for this fact, including me. I got out of the car and started to walk in. I was greeted by the same guy that I had talked to on the phone at the door. Come with me, the guy said. Something felt off. He looked nothing like I thought he would. He was tall, probably around 6'1", really skinny, and had messy hair. It looked like he hadn't slept in months. We made it inside and I sat down in front of his desk. We were in a nicely kept office completely different from the abandoned look of the outside of the building. Here, fill these papers out and you got the job. I thought to myself, that's a little weird. He's not going to ask me any questions. He's just giving me the job. I filled out the paperwork and he gave me a big book of procedures and rules to follow. Uh, please read these over when you get home and you should be fine. Your first shift starts tomorrow at 10.30pm. You should be fine. What did he mean by that? I walked out of the building and started to drive home. I stopped at a local burger shop and picked up some food for dinner. As soon as I got home... I ate and started reading the rules and the stuff that he had given me. It was just the normal stuff like make sure to lock the doors before and after your shift and stuff like that. But then I saw a bright red paper in the back of the folder titled Rules of the Night Shift. Rule number one, make sure to arrive at 10.30pm exactly, not later, not earlier. You don't want them getting bored. Rule number two, as soon as you walk up to the door, knock three times and say, Can I come in, sir? If a voice says yes, proceed to walk in and keep your eyes to the ground. Don't look up until you get to the office. If the voice says, No, not yet, wait another ten minutes exactly and knock again, and ask, and he should say yes so you can walk in. If he says nothing and you hear rattling in the bush next to you, run to your car and go home. You will still be paid at that night for your shaft. Rule number three. Once you get to your office, lock the door behind you and say thank you for letting me in. This one is important. If you don't thank him, he will cut your throat for rudeness. Rule number four. If you hear a scratching noise coming from behind you, do not look back. You don't want to see what he will show you. Rule number five. If you receive a call between the hours of 3am to 3.30am, do not answer. They will try to trick you by impersonating a family member or a friend. If you do answer and fall for their tricks, 
May God have mercy on your soul. Rule number six. While patrolling the hallway on the second floor, make sure to keep an eye on your watch. Time will literally fly by. Make sure as soon as the clock hits 4.25 a.m. to ascend to the next floor or you'll be stuck in that hallway forever. Rule number seven. Once you're on the third floor, you will see a really small guy run past you. You must flash him with your flashlight and tell him, not yet. This will make him disappear and he will leave you alone. If you fail to do so, he will escape and bring them into the building. Rule number eight. At 5.10 a.m., you will need to descend back to the first floor as quickly as you can and go back into your office. Once in there, turn on camera six and only camera six and stare into it for 20 minutes. It'll keep him at bay and from entering your office. Rule number nine. Once the clock turns to 6.30 a.m., your shift is over. Proceed to turn off all the cameras and walk to the exit of the building. Once you get outside, look to the right of you and there should be a sign. If there are only two strips on it, return into the building and wait 60 seconds. This is not the outside, it's a fake. If the sign has four strips, then you're good to go home and you will have successfully completed your first shift. What the heck is this? Is it some sort of joke? I thought to myself. This has to be, there's no way this can be real. I looked up at the clock and it said 12.11am. Crap, it's late. I better get to bed. I said to myself. I woke up the next day at around 4pm and got out of bed and did my midday routine. Made dinner and waited for 10.30pm so I could go to work. The rest of the day, I just sat around and watched TV. And there was nothing good on. I was just doing the normal flipping through the channels and trying to find something to watch. These rules really had me freaked out. I kept wondering if they were real or not. As I pondered this, a thought ran through my mind of something that I saw on a Reddit post before, about a weird set of rules. I quickly opened my computer and started searching for stuff about strange rules. As I started reading, my stomach dropped, realizing that maybe these were real. No, there's no way, they gotta be fake. I told myself to calm down. As this thought shot through my head, my alarm went off. Crap, it's 1021, I screamed. It's a 10 minute drive too. I'm going to be late on my first day, I thought to myself. I rushed to get my shoes on and grabbed my keys that were sitting next to my couch and I ran through the door towards my car. I unlocked my car and opened the door, got in and slammed it shut, feeling completely drained. I put the key into the ignition and started the car. As I was driving, rule number one, make sure to arrive at 10.30pm. No later, no earlier. You don't want them getting bored. It kept replaying over and over in my head. What does it mean by you don't want them getting bored? I didn't even want to imagine what would happen if I got there late. So I floored the gas pedal and drove as quickly as I ever have in my life. As I was pulling up to the school, I looked at the clock. 10.31pm. I froze. My heart dropped in my chest. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw two eyes emerging from the bushes to my left. And in a blink of an eye, it disappeared. I had just got here in time. 
who knows what would have happened to me if I was even a minute later than I already was. I took a second to collect myself. My heart felt like it was pounding through my chest and I could barely breathe at all. What the heck was that? It didn't even look human. I kept trying to tell myself that this was all just a big prank. A prank on the new guy in order to scare him on his first day. But what I saw couldn't be explained. I got out of my car and walked up to the door. I almost opened the door without even thinking. And then I remembered rule number two. I knocked on the door three times and said, Can I come in, sir? Out of nowhere, a voice boomed from the eerie hallways inside of the building. It sounded so loud, as if you were to hear someone had broadcasted it to the whole town. I recoiled back from the voice. Yes, the loud voice said in an angry tone. I opened the door and kept my eyes low to the ground, only remembering where to go from the last time that I was here. I got up to the door and quickly opened it and slammed it shut. Thank you for letting me in, I said in a weak, choked whisper. I slumped under the door, taking a breather for a second. Well, I know the rules are real now from what I just saw. Whatever these things are, I don't want to get on their bad side. I must follow the rules, I said to myself. What did this guy just get me into? Why didn't he warn me about all of this before I took the job? I retorted. I got up and looked at the desk. There was a yellow sticky note taped to one of the computer monitors. It read, oh, I forgot to add this rule on the rule sheet. While patrolling the first floor, if you hear voices coming from the classrooms trying to yell for help, ignore them no matter how human or how familiar they sound. If you open one of the doors, what you'll see in that room will haunt your dreams for the rest of your life. The temperature in the room seemed to drop. I had never been more terrified in my entire life. And to top it off, my first duty was to patrol the first floor. Crap, I whispered to myself. I grabbed my flashlight and headed out. I started by walking down the hallways, opening each door and seeing nothing but empty classrooms and papers flung all over the halls and rooms. When I heard it, the sound that I was so desperately praying not to hear... David, help me. The door is stuck. Help me open it. Uh, come on, sport. My eyes started to tear up and a huge wave of sadness and terror swept through me like a raging storm. That voice. It's the voice of my father that passed away ten years ago. It felt so good to hear his voice again, but I knew that it wasn't him. Whatever it was, it definitely was not him. I continued through the hall. I finished patrolling the first floor. It was pretty much uneventful, besides the voice of my deceased dad coming through one of the classroom doors. I started my way up to the second floor. As I was walking up the stairs, my phone rang. I took my phone out of my pocket and the caller ID read, Mom. I almost answered the phone out of instinct, but then I remembered I hadn't talked to her since she'd kicked me out and also rule number five. According to rule number five, if you receive a call between the hours of 3 and 3.30 in the morning, do not answer. They will try to trick you by impersonating a family member or a friend. I looked down at the clock and it read, 3.02 a.m. 
It felt like my entire life had no meaning at that moment. Knowing that it wasn't her, and that she would still want nothing to do with me. As I started walking up these stairs again, an ice-cold shiver ran down my spine and my blood froze. A voice from behind me said, Hi there, can you help me find my daddy? I froze for a second, questioning if I should turn around, and then I heard it again. Hi there, can you help me find my daddy? But this time it sounded more like in a desperate tone. It sounded like a small little girl. I thought back to the rules and didn't remember any rules regarding a little girl's voice coming from behind while ascending to the next floor. I closed my eyes and I heard footsteps coming from all around me. Can you help me find my daddy? The voice screamed at me. It said this over and over again. From what it sounded like, the noises were coming from all different angles like it was trying to scare me into opening my eyes. It let off one more loud scream. It sounded nothing like before. It sounded demonic and deep in nature. And with that, it was gone. I waited another 60 seconds before opening my eyes again and when I did, my blood ran dry. There were scratch marks all around me in each corner of the stairwell. Deep ones too. Whatever it was, it was strong. Strong enough to cut through the hard concrete that surrounded the stairwell. I took a second to catch my breath and began walking up these stairs once more. I pulled out the rule list and read it over again to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Because whatever that was, I'm sure it wasn't on here. Nope. Not a single rule about that girl. I shook my head in anger. I'm starting to feel like whoever wrote these did this on purpose. Like almost trying to tell me to get the heck out of here as fast as I can, but I can't. What will happen if I just leave and I break the remaining rules? I was stuck here in this hellhole of a school until my shift was over. As soon as I got to the second floor, still shaken up from my experience that I had on the stairs, I noticed the atmosphere had changed, completely unlike the first floor and the stairs, which had a real dark and creepy feel to them. The second floor had a joyful feeling, almost as if I was moving closer to the end faster, like I wanted to stay here forever. I started to doze off until I stabbed myself out of it and looked down at the rules. Rule number six. While patrolling the hallway on the second floor, make sure to keep an eye on your watch. Time will literally fly by. Make sure as soon as the clock hits 4.25am to ascend to the next floor, or you'll be stuck in that hallway forever. Whatever it was on this floor, it wanted me to forget about the time and just stay here with it. I continued down the hall much quicker than I did back on the first floor. It felt like minutes or seconds. I kept looking at my phone to see the time rising faster than I'd ever seen it rise before. As I ran through the halls, I quickly but thoroughly checked each room. And right as I was finishing up and running up to the stairs, the clock read 4.24am. I quickly ran up the stairs and ascended to the third floor. I took a moment to catch my breath and I started my way down the hallway of the third floor. As I was walking, I heard a really faint sound coming from the end of the hall. It almost sounded like running. I started to come closer and I could clearly hear it now. 
A thought ran through my head. Should I start booking it towards the stairs? As I thought this, a small man, probably 5'4 in height, really skinny, and had crazy long hair appeared from the darkness. It looked like he had his eyes set on the stairs. Oh crap, I said in a panic. I quickly got the rules out and looked to rule number 7. Once you are on the third floor, you will see a really small man run past you. You must flash him with your flashlight and tell him, Not yet. This will make him disappear and he will leave you alone. I quickly and swiftly turned around to see him almost to the stairway, and then I pointed my flashlight at him and screamed, Not yet. As I said this, he looked at me with pure dread on his face and disappeared. After that, I finished up my rounds and looked at the clock at 5.10am. I quickly made my way to the stairs and started running down them, almost tripping on the first step. I got down to the first floor. I ran to my office and slammed the door shut and locked it behind me. As I did this, a scratchy noise started at my window. Without even thinking, I looked up and froze. What I saw still gives me nightmares to this day. My heart pounded through my chest and I threw up at the sight. What I saw was a tall, slender creature at the window peering in. It had long, sharp claws, big, pointy teeth, and it was jet black. Its eyes. Its eyes were so empty. It was holding something in its right hand. It was my mother, lifeless, with blood pouring from her stomach and her eyes. As I saw this, a pounding came from behind me, and I had forgotten all about rules 8 and 4. I messed up. I quickly snapped out of it and looked away from the window. I turned on camera 6 and saw nothing there. I have to get out of here. If I stay here any longer, I'm going to die, I said to myself. I grabbed my keys and opened the door and began to run towards the exit. I flung open the door and bolted to my car. I got in and drove off. What was that thing and why did it have my mom? I started to cry as my car hit 110 miles per hour. As I was pulling up, I looked down at these stupid rules and was about to tear them up, but then I saw rule number 9. Once the clock turns 6.30am, your shift is over. Proceed to turn off all the cameras and walk to the exit of the building. Once you get outside, look to the right of you and there should be a sign. If there are only two strips on it, return into the building and wait 60 seconds. This is not the outside, it's a fake. If the sign has four stripes, then you're good to go home and you will have successfully completed your first shift. I froze at the sight. I remembered back when I was driving off, in the corner of my eye I saw the sign and it had two strips and from the bushes, at the corner of the building, I saw a wide smile. I broke rule number nine, I whispered to myself in fear. As I said this, I looked in my rearview mirror and saw something that would follow me for years to come. The tall slender man that I had seen out the window. I'm hiding in my bathroom right now, writing this. Two years have passed, and he, no, that thing still follows me. It's like that night has never ended. Every time the clock hits at 6.30, it resets and goes back to 10.30pm. I have barely been able to survive, 
The only time that I can go out and get food is from 2.30 to 3.30 in the morning. And also, I'm the only one here. This town has turned into a ghost town since that horrible night. If you're reading this right now, Sent help never ever worked the night shift at the Eddersville Abandoned Middle School, no matter how good the pay is. I'm a pilot for the U.S. Air Force. The government is hiding the truth. Written by Operator Blackout. My name is Alan, and just for some background, I'm a pilot for the United States Air Force. I fly the F-35A Stealth Joint Strike Fighter. I am in the 466th Fighter Squadron, or Diamondbacks. My 27th mission was covered up by the U.S. government. I saw people sharing their stories here, so I decided to share mine. Here's what actually happened on my 27th mission. In 2019, my squad and I had just arrived at an airbase in Afghanistan. I was in my F-35A Lightning flying over the base waiting for the aircraft control tower to give me the signal to land. I had flown 26 sorties before this so I had a fair amount of experience. I was used to landing at bases so I wasn't worried my squad was already landed or landing. I was supposed to land last. Finally, I got the call to go in for the landing. I deployed my air brake and decreased airspeed while lining up for the landing strip. After I dropped below 250 miles per hour, I deployed my landing gear at 450 feet and decreased altitude and landed safely and began making my way to my jet's small hangar toward the front of the airstrip. My squad had all the hangars to my right. I had the first hangar. This means if a situation occurs to me and my squad, we would be the first in the sky. The next three hangars next to ours were an F-16 squad. I backed my F-35 into the hangar with help of the ground crew. I got out of my F-35 and was greeted by a couple of officers who showed me my way to the barracks. The squad who was already following the officers followed me, and when we arrived, we all laid down from exhaustion. Finally, we're here, said Johnson. Yeah, that nine-hour flight stunk. The rest of the squad was out, or texting their families that they had made it. Alright everyone, get some rest, y'all are gonna need it. We never know when we'll get called out to flight again. The part of the squad that was awake said in total disorder. Alright sir. That night, my squad and I got a good night's rest. Basically, we're there for three days doing nothing but our occasional PT. On the third night, I was fast asleep. When the alarms in our barracks started going off... I immediately jumped out of bed and began putting on my flight suit. The rest of my squad was doing the same. I looked at Johnson, Garrett, and Josh and they were all getting ready to move. I put on my vest and I strapped it on. Let's go boys, I screamed. They all said, yes sir. When we all began running towards our jets, the crewmen on the ground had them all ready to go. I got in and I fired up the engine. 
rolled the jet down the strip to take off position. I put on the highly advanced helmet and the ground crew and gave the green to go. I took off down the runway, followed by my squad. I decreased speed and I let them catch up. Unknown flyers at northwest of the base. All fighters moved to intercept. Command said over the radio, This is Diamondback 1 moving to intercept. Copy Diamondback 1. This is Diamondback 1 weapons check. Diamondback 2 check. Diamondback 3 check. Diamondback 4 check. Copy that. All units form up targets are about 300 miles out. Does the command know anything what we're facing? Said Garrett. No clue at Garrett, but we'll be there in about 45 minutes, I said. Let's go, fellas. We got some actual combat, said Johnson in a very excited voice. Ah, come on, Johnson. Don't get too excited. We still got no clue what we're facing, I said. Oh, don't worry about it, Alan. It's probably just some old MiG-21 that the Russians left behind, said Josh. Hey, you never know, man, I said. I looked at my radar and the object looked like it wasn't closing in. Everybody pushed speed up to 1500 miles per hour. Over. I looked behind me and watched my F-35 break the sound barrier as I sped up. I looked back at the radar and we were about 215 miles away. Our missiles were long range air to air missiles which we could fire from about 100 miles away. It was a dark night, around zero visibility without night vision, so I had to rely on my high-tech flight helmet. We were about 100 miles away. I tapped my fire system, and the internal compartments beneath the plane opened, and I fired an AIM-54 Phoenix forwards. The missiles had its own radar system, so I was hoping it could find the radar signature of this unknown aircraft. I watched the missile tear through the skies until I lost vision. I looked around for my squad to see them in a tight formation with me. I was shocked that Johnson hadn't messed it up like he always did. I had this feeling that the missile I had sent had missed. And we were about 30 miles out, about two minutes away. I could see this tiny light in the sky, up ahead when suddenly radar and comms came back on. Diamondback one to all, how copy? What is that? said Garrett. Dude, I don't know, said Johnson. All units do not engage. It's just sitting there like something is holding it by a string. I was shocked by what I saw. It didn't look like any aircraft I had ever seen. It was a giant aircraft shaped like a sphere. It had lights all over it, and it was just hovering there like it was volatile. My computer did not recognize what I was looking at. There was what looked to be a highly futuristic weapon on the top, but it was not firing. When suddenly, it jerked over towards the north. I looked down by my radar to see more signatures, but they were F-16s, the second sortie. I tried to communicate with them, when suddenly I see this alien sphere shoot five lasers 
and I see all three F-16s burst into flames, and watch as the jets fall down and the pilots eject, thankfully. The other two lasers hit Josh and Johnson, but the laser just seemed to deflect off. Like the design of their aircraft had prevented them from bursting into flames. What the heck? screamed Josh. All units engage. My squad launched their missiles at the craft, and I watched them impact it, causing damage. I looked over at Johnson's aircraft to realize that he had sustained damage to his right wing. Johnson had also received damage. The F-35 was a really fragile jet, so I told them both to head back to base. Copy that, sir. Take whatever this is down. We've already shot all our missiles, said Johnson. It's damaged. Looks like there's an opening on the south side. Alan and Garrett's move in, and you might take it down, said Josh. I came around to the south side of the aircraft and pulled a 9G turn and came directly towards the opening. I could clearly see a bright blue light in the shaft. I used my tracking computers to lock onto the light. I opened my weapon bay doors and fired four AIM-9 sidewinders into the light. The entire south side of the ship blew off. I watched as the bright blue light pierced through the smoke and flames. A direct hit. As I was flying by, I got a good look inside the aircraft. Through the flames, I saw large creatures dead all over the place. And then I saw something disturbing that I will never forget. Multiple human bodies in a giant pile close to the center. They looked in pieces and eaten. I nearly puked. I flew by and began another turn when suddenly... I looked up and saw Garrett's F-35 launch all eight missiles, and I watched them impact the craft and explode. The large craft began falling rapidly out of the sky. Command, this is Diamondback 1. UFO is down in grid 23. Sector 4, over. Copy that, Diamondback Squadron. Stay over the crash site until ground troops arrive. Copy what was that? Garrett said nervously. I don't know, but I know we're probably lucky to be alive. Jesus, I saw humans in the craft along with unknowns. You saw humans, said Garrett. Yeah, and they were all disfigured, like they were eaten. What the heck? Garrett and I both go back into a duo formation. I look over at Garrett's jet and saw his left wing had a small hole in it. Hey, your wing looks to be damaged. Garrett, make sure to get back to base quickly. Copy that, sir. You sure you'll be able to keep it covered? Yeah, I got it. Copy that. And good luck, Alan. I watched as Garrett pulled off into the distance. I lowered my altitude to around 10,000 feet to try and get a visual on the crash site. Luckily, I saw the smoke and flames. Through the infrared cameras on the F-35s below, I can see through these cameras thanks to my helmet. While I was looking, I watched as the sphere burned on the ground. Command, this is one. I have visual on the crash site. 
As I was looking down, I saw movement and heat signatures on the ground. It looked like as if the creatures or aliens were limping out and trying to escape. This is Diamondback 1. I got movement down by the wreckage. Copy that one. Engage all moving tangos. I angled my F-35 into a dive as I began diving on the creatures. I began to line my sight up on the gray figures. My hand hovered over the trigger as I hit 6,000 feet, soon 5,000. I opened fire and watched my 30mm bullets tear through the tall figures in the ground. They were all about 8 feet tall. Skinny bodies, lanky arms, and extremely long necks. I watched as they exploded into pieces. I pulled out of my dive and the G's nearly made me puke. Since I was already nauseous from seeing these things in general. This is Diamondback 1. Targets are Kia. Copy that. Helix 2-3 is inbound and hot to investigate. Return to base. Copy that. Returning to base. Before I returned to base, I flew lower to the ground to get a better look at what I had just done. As I hit about 1,500 feet, I looked down and saw the pile of humans scattered everywhere, probably the same one that I had saw earlier. At this sight, my stomach couldn't handle it anymore. I took off my oxygen mask and I puked into a bag. I saw these 12-foot creatures dead everywhere. I looked away and pulled up beginning to return to base. About 15 minutes later, I was landing back at base. As soon as I landed and exited the plane, I saw six guys in full black suits with the commander of the base walk up to me and asked me to come with them. I walked with them to the commander's office and as we entered, I saw my team sitting there. The commander and the six guys in black sat down and I followed. Sign these disclosure agreements, please. One of the guys in black said, Also, in your after action, report none of what you saw happened. You need to make a story about running into a fighter squad and they shot down three F-16s and damaged two F-35s. I looked at the commander. Yes, sir, I said. And so did my squad. And what happens if we don't do this? Asked Johnson. Well, let's just say that you will agree, one of the guys in black said. I watched as Johnson, as nervous as he was, signed the contract. Alright, you're all good to go. Not a word to anyone, the commander said in a very serious voice. My squad and I returned to our barracks and there was a dead silence for a good 30 minutes. Guys, what just happened? Josh said in a very nervous voice. I don't know. I think we just ran into something that the government does not want getting out. Who are those guys in black? Asked Garrett. Probably a three letters. Said Johnson nervously. Guys, let's just get some rest. Whatever those things were, talking about them will harm us better than help us. Uh, good night, everyone. After this, I never had another experience like this. My squad had kept our mouths shut until now. I don't know what those things were or where they came from. 
but all I know is that they were not from here. There are things, life forms, that our government does not want us to know about. I don't know what will happen to me from here, but thankfully our missiles were able to take down whatever that was. To this day, I have no clue who those guys in black were and whom they worked for. I also have no clue what happened to that ship and those creatures that I had mowed down. It rains every year on my birthday. Today, I found out why. Written by A.M. Hathazard. The front door tore open as the first rumblings of thunder burst through the early evening air. I could barely say hello before my mom threw an arm around my shoulders and tugged me inside. Bert, Hallie's finally home. I laughed as she pulled my bag from my hand and started fussing over me, brushing my hair back, squeezing my cheeks together. It was a habit that I had always hoped she would grow out of as I had reached adolescence. But after seven long months away, I had to admit that it made me feel right back at home. Mom, stop. I'm fine. I insisted half-heartedly. You're late. She stuck one of those fingers right in my face and wagged it around. Dinner's been done for half an hour. Her eyes flickered to the front window, where the first droplets of rain had begun to spit from the sky. And it's about to storm. Of course it is. I shook my head and chuckled. It was a running joke in our family at this point. Every year on my birthday, it rained. Without fail. For as long as I can remember, birthdays were marked by gathering around our dining room table, eating cake and opening presents, all while watching the world drown from out the side window. Thankfully, birthdays were always family events. There were always time for friends, and my parents had told me, but I only had so much time left to spend with them. Let me put my stuff away. I'll be down in a second, I said, starting up the stairs. With each step, my head throbbed like an overinflated balloon. My early birthday celebration the night before had been a success, but the hangover left in its weight was very wicked. My bedroom sat at the end of the hallway, untouched since I had left for college in the fall. It was a strange little time capsule of old friends and faded memories that by now felt like another lifetime. I smiled and tossed my backpack on the bed. Something delicious tickled up my nose as I made my way back downstairs and headed toward the dining room. My mom's famous jambalaya was another birthday tradition. It sounded like the perfect thing to settle my stomach. And my nerves. My dad was already seated at the head of the table. A tumbler of scotch in hand that he had raised in a toast. As I rounded the corner... Then there she is, he boomed, his thick brown mustache bobbing over his lips for a dramatic effect. The prodigal daughter returns. Oh, shut up. I laughed and headed over for a quick hug. Soon enough, we had settled in and all at an overflowing plate in front of us. They wasted no time before falling back into their familiar routine of grilling me on just about every subject they could think of. 
grades, friends, my new part-time job. My parents have always been involved, to say the least. It was another one of those things that I don't even able to start appreciating with time. How's that dorm life? My dad asked as my mom hopped up to start scooping dessert. Is that roommate of yours still stealing your clothes? That's, well, that's actually something I wanted to talk to you guys about. My stomach sank to the floor and blood rushed my cheeks. What's that? Asked my mom. Well, you guys know I had such bad luck this year with her. It really interrupted my studies. I stressed. You didn't tell us that. Well, it did, so... That's why me and Brian decided next semester that we're going to move in together. The silence that fell was bitterly cold. It froze both of my parents in place, mouth agape, waiting for me to say the punchline. Seconds ticked by before, all at once, they exploded back to life. Like hell you are, said my dad. You've got to be kidding me, said my mom. Dad, I... You're 19 years old, Hallie. You're way too young to be shacking up with some loser. Dad, I'm an adult. You can't just... Oh, are you adult enough to pay for school on your own? We went back and forth for a while. Voices steadily rising as the cherry pie on our plates got cold and thunder shook the windows. I had known they wouldn't approve, but this was worse than I had ever imagined. Mom stayed quiet, caught between us like a hostage negotiator, begging with her eyes for us to calm down. Go ahead then. I shot up from my chair, sending it crashing to the floor behind me as I slammed my hand on the polished tabletop. Cut me off. I'll drop out and wait tables for the rest of my life. Either way, I'm moving in with him. End of story. Hallie, sit your butt down. His shouting grew distant as I turned and stormed back down the hall and up the stairs, eventually slamming my bedroom door behind me. It was juvenile, perhaps, but it still felt good to make the frame quake behind me as I took to pacing the room. Frustration bubbled under my skin, like a shaken soda bottle ready to burst. How many fights had ended this very same way? How many times did my parents put their foot down? when I tried to establish the barest hint of independence. Too many to count. I was sure Mom was rubbing Dad's back by then, assuring him that I would come to my senses. He wouldn't apologize, he never did. Instead, he would wait for me to sulk back with my tail between my legs, ready to apologize and give in to whatever he decided was right for me. Almost well, screw that. I slung my backpack back over my shoulder and grabbed my keys. I would drive 15 more hours if it meant that I didn't have to look at his smug face waiting for me to cow. I heard their voices muttering from the dining room as I swung the front door open. The mossy smell of fresh rain hit me like a brick, while the chilled breeze washed down my lungs like a glass of ice water. Mahalie! My mother screamed from the other room. Pulling the hood of my jacket snugly over my head, I darted off the porch. A wave of pain exploded in my body, so intense that my vision went black for a moment, so consuming I couldn't tell right away where it had come from. 
Before I knew it, I was being lurched backward by something wrapped tightly around my neck. I hit the porch with a thud. The pressure eased. My mother knelt over me, eyes wide as dinner plates. Oh God, she whispered. The pain, it was still there, burning, spreading. It prickled along my cheek and my hands. I moaned, a lowing, keening noise that I almost didn't recognize as my own. And then I lifted my hand up in front of my face. A sob tore from my lips as I caught sight of it. It was like acid had been splashed across my skin. Gelatinous clumps of flesh had melted away, dripping down my wrist and coagulating on the sleeve of my hoodie. It was still going, a bubbling liquid eating away everything in its path. Even worse was what lay underneath it. Instead of the pearly white bones I might expect jutting up from the mess of ruined flesh, something else sat there instead. There were fingers, sure. My fingers, given how they clenched and moved in turn with the waves of pain that coursed through me. But they were as black as the night around us, made of hundreds of delicate intertwining bones that reminded me of birds' legs. They joined at the top into a vicious point. A scream bubbled up in the back of my throat, trapped there as tear-streaked eyes darted to my mother's worried face. She barely glanced at the misshapen hand, though I did reach down to give my covered shoulder a comforting squeeze. My eyes turned to find my father shaking in the doorway. Bert, she gasped, raising her free hand to cover her trembling lips. They're going to find her. My dad sprung into action, our argument from moments before a long-forgotten memory. He hooked his arms under my shoulders and dragged me back inside. I hung limp like a ragdoll, tears finally breaking through the barrier of shock and disorientation that had held them at bay. My mother slammed the door shut behind us, clicking the deadbolt and sliding the chain into place. I'll get the bags, she announced. My father gave one quick, grim nod. I'll get the car ready. What's happening? I groaned from the floor, cradling my ruined hand in the other. Some patches of flesh had burned away on it as well, but altogether it was in much better shape. It still looked like mine. It still looked human. I could even still see the scar from 7th grade, where Preston had stabbed me with a pencil. We don't have time, sweetie, he said. We have to move. He disappeared down the hallway and I heard the door to the garage crash open. I was left alone to hiccup and cry on the foyer floor until I had finally calmed enough to pull my unsteady feet back underneath me. My face still burned. I staggered into the living room where an oversized ornate mirror hung behind the couch. Everything in my body screamed that this was a horrible idea that I didn't want to know. But I had to see. I just had to. Even still, I gasped. Spots of disintegration were speckled across my face. The tip of my nose was gone. My left cheek was hollowed out like a pumpkin. Underneath sat those same spindly, paper-thin bones. Millions of them. In the overhead light, they had an eerie, incandescent glow. But wait, were they... were they moving?
Thunder ripped through the sky outside. My body shook right along with the frame of the house. Realization struck just as lightning lit the front yard. The spots of my body that were injured were the areas uncovered by my jacket or my clothes. My exposed skin. It was where the rain had touched me. No, that made no sense. I had been out in the rain plenty of times in my life. I had walked home in it after school. Came home drenched one night after sneaking out with my friends. In fact, I was quite fond of the rain, despite the fact that it had always seemed to unsettle my mom. It made no sense. Another crashing sound thudded through the house, almost mistaken for another round of thunder. The storm was right on top of us now, roaring and ripping all around, but no clap of lightning followed. Seconds later, bang. I jumped back, glancing toward the ceiling. Upstairs, my mother raced back and forth. Drawers squeaked open and closed. But no, that wasn't it. Dad! I called in a hushed tone down the hall. There wasn't an answer. I couldn't hear him past the hum of the storm. Movement caught my eye in the mirror. I searched for her once, twice. Nothing. A car drove by on the street outside, headlights cutting through the inky darkness of the street. There, palms outstretched on the front window, stood a massive shadow. I spun around. The light quickly flickered away, bathing it once more in darkness. But now that my eyes had found it, I couldn't possibly look away. It wasn't a shadow at all, just a mess of dark, delicate bones. Its eyes glinted beyond the glass, a deep, intoxicating violet. As it watched me, something on its face stretched wide. More darkness lingered in its open mouth, but I could tell it was smiling. I screamed, all the horror that had welled up inside me reaching a shrill, piercing crescendo. My father barreled around the corner, but jerked to a stop when he saw the creature out the window. Its long, spindly fingers curled into a fist and beat against the glass. She's ours, my father shouted. Leave us alone. He wrapped an arm around my waist and pulled me back into the foyer. My mother was just descending the stairs, a bag in hand. The glass above the front window exploded inward, showering us in crystalline shards. All three of us darted for the back door. Adrenaline dulled the pain in my hand to a distant ache. My parents' SUV was already running. The back seat, piled high with totes and bags had previously tucked away in the garage. I had never asked what my dad had kept stored out there. Why the garage was the only room in the house perpetually cluttered. I hopped in the back seat while my parents climbed in the front. I huffed as my father adjusted the rear view. I could see his veins bulging in his arm. My mom's a tear-stricken face glancing behind us. Now, Bert. Her tone was solemn, resigned. My father clicked the garage door opener and shifted into reverse. The door hummed and then kicked to life, groaning as it inched up off the ground. The sound of rain still dancing along the roof above us. I turned in my seat to stare out the back window. We all held our breath.
The door was about three feet high when the first dark figure wrapped its hands around its base and shoved upwards. Metal squealed against metal as it was pushed further up into the ceiling. My hands darted to my ears, and then I caught sight of my own blackened fingers as they fell back down to my side. Another figure darted in, skittering against the cement, jumping up to rest on our bumper. Behind it was a third, this one more cautious, peeking in under the door and smiling its predatory grin. Now, my mom shouted. My dad slammed in the gas and the Ford flew backward. The door hadn't fully ascended. The two creatures still back there jumped to either side. The roof of the vehicle scraped the aluminum door, sticking for a few long painful seconds before we burst free into the night air. The last creature clung on for dear life, hands digging into the side of the vehicle, feet slipping against the now slick bumper. Its black teeth gnashed against the glass. Its purple eyes were wide, hysterical. It looked pained, terrified, sad. My dad hardly slowed as we pulled out onto the street and kicked it in drive, even as the tires screamed underneath us. As we lurched forward, it struggled against the vehicle, eventually losing its grip and tumbling away. I watched it hit the wet cement behind us with a thud. The others weren't far behind. Both stopped to pull it back up to its feet. We revved through our quiet suburban neighborhood, twisting and turning until we had reached the exit for the highway. The creatures faded behind us, yet still I found myself staring out into the pouring rain, hands stinging in my lap. Finally, I was pulled from my daze by the giant flash of headlights behind us. I turned back around to my parents. Mom, I said. Dad, what's going on? They exchanged a long glance. My mom shook as she reached out to turn down the radio. I hadn't even noticed it humming in the background. We should have told you, Hallie, she whispered, shaking her head. We were foolish to think we... We were foolish to wait so long. I stared down at my torn hand. The same delicate alien black bones of the creature set had attacked us. Was I? You shouldn't have tried to leave, sweetie, added my dad. I never heard him sound so small, so helpless. The disappointment in his tone was nothing like his rage-fueled rant of disapproval, but something far more visceral. No, I don't know if we can protect you. Don't say that, my mother snapped. I leaned back into the plush gray seat, exhaustion sinking me down into the headrest. I caught a glance at myself in the rear view. My burn, speckled face looked pale, sickly. The blue of my eyes looked darker and deeper. Protect me from what? I asked. A sob shook my mother's chest. She turned toward the window and buried her face in her hands. My dad's eyes rose to meet my own in the mirror, brows hanging over them like thick branches bowing in the wind. Something deep in my gut already knew the answer, but even still, I needed to hear him say it. I needed to know. From your family... We drove for hours in silence, 
my father staring solemnly out into the road, and my mother sniffling and hiccuping next to him. After the adrenaline of our escape had wore off, I curled up in the back row of seats and did my best to let my mind drift off into a welcome oblivion. The sting in my hand had worn off several miles out of town. When I realized that the pain was gone, I lifted it to my face to inspect it further. My human fingertips brushed against the melted skin, and it flaked away underneath like a bad sunburn. I grabbed a bit of it and tugged. It pulled away in a long, gooey string that stuck to the seat underneath me. Don't do that, my mother snapped. I hadn't even noticed her looking. It all started shortly after they were married, my father had said, back when they had just begun to dream of the wonderful little family that they would have together. I've heard this story a thousand times, I had told him, huffing in frustration. You and mom wanted a dozen kids at least, but no matter what, it never seemed to happen. You nearly gave up, but the week after mom's doctor told you that it was hopeless, she got pregnant with me. No, he had said. We never told you she got pregnant. I quieted down and let him continue. We had tried everything at that point. Doctors, of course, but more than that. Faith healers, shamans, wishing on shooting stars. It seemed like every culture around the world had their little spells and charms to help with fertility. But at the end of the day, most of them were full of crap. Until one wasn't. My mom whispered. It was the strangest thing. Back before we had moved here, we lived in this tiny little town called St. Jane's. Down the block from our apartment was a widow, Mrs. Danby. She was a strange woman, kept to herself. Every single window to her house was covered in blackout curtains. I only ever saw her sitting on her porch when I left for the hospital before the sun rose, or got home in the wee hours of the morning. She always waved, but she never said hello. We never told her anything. My mom interjected. Like he said, we never talked to her. I hadn't told her about my issues with getting pregnant. I hadn't told anyone, not even grandma or grandpa. I just felt so useless. Margaret. My dad's voice softened. He reached out to squeeze her leg. You didn't do anything wrong. But one day, she continued, the old woman showed up at the door. Dad was at work and the sun was still high in the sky. In her arms was a dark purple blanket wrapped in a tight bundle. Whatever was inside was moving, squirming. I swallowed down the lump, expanding to my throat. It was me, I asked. She let out a long, shaking breath. Yes, it was you. Road signs had flickered past the windows at that point, announcing our departure from town. Rain continued to beat heavily against the windows, blown from wind almost as chilly as the sounds between us. My mother cleared her throat and continued. She said she had known of our struggles, how badly we wanted a family, though while she couldn't make our dreams come true, 
she could give us one. Just one. A child of her own. I was terrified. I thought that she had gone off her rocker for good. I thought she had kidnapped a baby or something. But I was sort of mesmerized by her too. I looked down at the bundle and even though I couldn't see anything inside, I could just feel it, you know. That child that you were ours. I don't understand. I said, only for my father to snap back at me. Just let your mother finish. I invited her inside, she continued, and she locked the door behind her. She ushered me back into the bedroom like she had been there before, like she knew exactly where it was. She told me to keep quiet, to listen, or for as long as I had lived I'd never hear the laughter of a child. I didn't even question it. I just believed her. She pulled back the blanket tin, and I... She wavered, gripping hard at the center console. I didn't know what I was seeing. It was tiny and black as coal. I thought it was something dead. And then it started to coo. She set it down on the bed and it stretched its little arms, wiggled its toes. Despite how strange it looked, it was clearly a baby. She took my hand in hers, squeezed it like a vice. It was ours now, she had told me. Ours forever. As long as we protected it. As long as we had loved it. I promised her we would. That it was all I ever wanted. When I looked back, its black little bones were gone. Covered in soft, pale flesh. Red, round cheeks. We do love you. My father added, guilt swam in his voice like a koi fish. You know that, right? She squeezed my hand tighter until I looked back over at her. Tears were streaming down my face at that point, but her eyes were hard as steel. She leaned in close. Her breath smelled like menthol and incense. There was one rule we couldn't break if we truly wanted this child to be ours, she said. Once a year, on the anniversary of that day, it would rain. It would rain all day and all night, until the ground flooded and the trees fell. And no matter what, we could never let that particular rain touch our skin. If we did, the illusion would be gone. Then the creatures that she came from, my father finished, would find her. A million questions filled my head, but as soon as each occurred, they drifted back out like a wave receding from the shore. It was too much for my mind to grasp. Somewhere along the line, exhaustion took me, and I drifted off into a fitful sleep. Sometime later, I started back awake, only to find the air filled with my mother's soft snores. My dad still stared vigilantly ahead of us. I couldn't recognize where we were. As I searched the dark night for a clue, I swore I could see shadows flickering along the tree line in the distance. Dad, I muttered, pushing myself up from the seat with my skeletal hand. The pain had all but vanished. It felt stronger somehow, vibrant, like a current of energy zipped up and down the length of my fingers. Oh, where are we going? 
For a moment, I wasn't sure if he would answer me. Too lost in his own grim thoughts and all the encompassing darkness ahead. Finally, he sighed, glancing back at me through the rearview mirror. We're going to St. Jane's, Hallie. We're going to get some answers. The town sat several miles off of the highway. A small, decrepit place one could easily pass through without realizing it even existed. The gas station on its outskirts was the only lit building that I saw. Otherwise, the dim glow of street lamps in the distance looked more like dying stars hanging close to earth, ready to fall. My mom started awake as we pulled to a stop. In a flash, she had taken in our surroundings and I could see the apprehension well up in her puffy cheeks. Are you sure she's still here, Bert? My father snorted. Where else will the old hag go? I stayed quiet in the back seat, ducked down with my hood pulled tightly around my head. I couldn't imagine how the woman was still alive, if she had already been old when I was a baby. My father seemed confident though. What room did I have to argue? My mom darted off to use the restroom and outside the opposite door my dad fiddled with the gas cap. The storm had finally calmed into a half-hearted drizzle around us bathing the cement in a glossy, dazzling sheen. They knew I was close, that I was coming home. They didn't have to search for me any longer. Soon, my parents packed back into the car. Even from behind them, I could practically feel them buzzing with trepidation, feel the hair on the back of their arms rising from the chill of the air. Large round drops of water pooled on the raincoats, so close I could reach out and touch it. The car jerked into motion and we pulled back onto the road. The town ahead inched closer as my dad had stepped on the gas. For most of the trip, I had been tired and dazed in the back seat. But now, I sat ramrod straight, attention held rapidly by those lights in the distance. The tingling in my veins turned into a full-on itch. It was all I could do to keep it at bay. Out of nowhere, I lurched forward forehead colliding with the back of the driver's seat before, the suddenly tightened seatbelt made me gag from its pressure. I lifted both hands up to protect my face, to try in vain to push myself back up. The car was spinning, I realized, skating on the wet cement as if it were a roller rink, the tail end skidding to the left. Oh god, oh god, oh god. My mother chanted like a prayer. And then the impact hit and quieted all of us. Seconds crawled by like ants through molasses. I raised my clawed hand to my head and retracted it, to find fresh, flowing blood. The window next to me was cracked. One large round point of impact that spiderwebbed out in delicate patterns throughout the entirety of the pane. To my right, the car was crumpled like an old candy wrapper, folded around a massive tree trunk. My mother was groaning, pawing at her right elbow. My father was slumped down in his seat. I leaned forward to peer over the center console. The headlights still illuminated the murky night ahead. Four lanky shadow figures stood vigilantly in the distance, their bodies swaying and pulsing with unspent energy. Then a bang. I jumped as something collided with the side of the car. A hand, I realized. 
pounding against the glass of my father's window. A hand that was black as night, composed of delicate spindly bones and a 19-year vendetta. Something landed on top of the car and another hand pounded against the windshield. Neither of my parents had come to yet. My mind raced, trying to remember where my father had stashed the gun, turning over the possibility of us getting the car moving again even if we tried. Every train of thought only led back to one cold, hard reality. I couldn't protect them. Not here, not like this. In the distance, the others began to approach. I snatched my hoodie back over my head and pulled the strings to tighten it as far as it would go. My hands wrapped around the door handle. In front of me, small pieces of glass chipped away from the rest of the pane on the driver's window and flew toward my father's face. I took a deep, slow breath to steady myself, and then I shoved my door open. In seconds, I was darting away, wincing as the dripping rain met my skin and sent short sizzles of pain searing through me. I shoved my hands in my pockets, which threw me off balance but at least kept the worst of it at bay as I made it one yard away, and then two. On the road, there were more of them. One was collapsed on the ground, its long skeletal leg jutting off at a severe sort of angle, with two more trying to pull it to its feet. From behind me, a screech filled the air, alerting the others to my presence. I swerved to avoid them, and headed for the trees in the distance. I let out a pained cry as I broke through the forest line. My clothes were growing heavy with the weight of the water soaking into them, shaken off of the overhanging leaves. As it pressed against my skin, the brief bursts of pain turned into a full-on blaze. It was as if boiling water or acid had seeped into my hoodie and jeans and clung like static against my skin. The pain quickly got the better of me, leaving me staggering, jerking my hands out of my pockets just in time to brace against a tree as I started to lose my balance. Its bark bit at my hands, rubbing away the delicate, false skin that clung to it. My vision swayed, nausea bubbling in my stomach like a fizzy drink. I clawed desperately at the base of my jacket and the tank top underneath, anything to make the burning stop. I pulled them up and over my head, crying as my skin clung to them sloughing off my bones like a layer of dried glue. I glanced down at my body. I couldn't help it. Somehow, I still expected to see red, pulsing organs and pearly white ribs. But there was nothing of the sort. Only midnight dark bones, hard and protective like an exoskeleton. I fumbled next with my jeans, hands shaking in anticipation of the pain that would follow. Already, the searing sensation from my torso had turned into a dull ache that I longed for across the rest of my body, skin be damned. Everything around me tilted and shivered, but as I kicked off my shoes and shoved the denim down over my ankles, movement from up ahead caught my eye. I stumbled out of my pants and fell backward, hitting the wet grass with a thud. Up ahead of me was one of them, standing regally against the trees. Another emerged from the shadows, and then another. I twisted to look behind them. Three more were already there. Don't hurt them, I begged, 
My own voice was unfamiliar to me, filled with gravel. Please don't hurt them. I'll do anything I... Why would we hurt them, dear? A voice spoke from somewhere ahead of me. I looked back and forth between the creatures, trying to make sense of where those sweet, matronly words had originated from. From behind, one of the trees another figure appeared, short and stooped, shuffling carefully over the uneven ground. Her gray hair stood out like a beacon in the dark night, yet the trees above cast ghastly shadows into the deep-set wrinkles of her face. Her grin was sinister, yet nothing else in her posture suggested a threat. The creatures, my family, parted to let her through. All they want is for you to come home. One of the creatures approached me. It was slow, hesitant in its movements. It reached a tentative hand out to brush against my cheek. I flinched, but forced my gaze up regardless to meet its violet eyes. I could swear that I saw tears welling up in the corners. Two others moved forward, offering their hands to help me to my feet. Together, we stumbled after Miss Danby as she turned and headed deeper into the forest. Behind me, the injured creature was helped along by the others, and we kept a slow, steady pace with one another. In the distance, I could hear my father screaming my name. The forest was deeper and darker than I would have imagined, growing thick around me with each treacherous step. My feet caught in the underbrush, but for every trip and stumble the creature stood patiently by my side as I recovered. Up ahead of us, Miss Danby moved through the trees with startling ease despite her advanced age. Her and her companions nearly blended in with the wilderness, an extension of the gnarled bark and twisting branches around us. The thought comforted me, and then instantly filled me with unease as I realized how preposterous that was. Family or not, I didn't belong here. The farther we went, the more that I had to keep reminding myself. I'm not sure how long or how far we walked before the old witch finally came to a stop. I could barely make out a line of stones in the ground before her, jutting off in either direction and disappearing into the thick foliage. The creatures that had accompanied her continued onward stepping over the rocks and flickering out of view. The group with the injured member soon followed. I blinked and then squinted against the darkness. They hadn't just tucked themselves away in the shadows. They had disappeared entirely, as if the forest itself had sucked them back in. My gaze dropped back down to the stones for a moment, before rising to see Miss Dansby's grinning face. I found them by accident, she explained, gesturing toward the towering trees behind her. Many years ago, I lost my husband and daughter in a car crash. Overnight, I was left all alone. I took to wandering the forest. I would walk for hours on end, listening to the wind and the birds, imagining that I heard their voices whispering just under the surface. I was probably mad with grief, but it was like I knew if I just kept walking, I might find them again. But you didn't, I said, taking a step closer to her. 
I understood the pull my mother felt to this strange, mesmerizing woman. Even though she spoke in a hushed, intimate volume, each word seemed polished, grand, rolling off her tongue with a conspiratory flourish. Of course not, she huffed. They were dead. It was her turn to move forward, floating past me to stop in front of the towering monster to my right, the one who had brushed my cheek looked at me with so much longing that it made my stomach twist. The old woman smiled at it and reached out to clutch its hand, giving it a small, loving squeeze. But I did find them. What are they? Finally, I felt something stirring within me, a hint of dismay that I should have been feeling all along. You mean, she corrected, dropping the creature's hand to point a finger in my direction. What are you? My gaze dropped to the front of my body, the twisted black bones that had been hiding just below the surface. There were still spots of flesh speckled along my legs and torso, but even that was starting to curl around the edges and flake away. Soon, there would be none left at all. They don't have a name, she continued, at least not one that humans would understand. They're simply a part of the forest, a part of nature. They always have been. They live here, tucked away safely behind their barrier. The stones, I realized, they kept them hidden from the world. They can't leave unless it's raining, I said, voice breathless. Miss Danby nodded, pleased with my assessment. No, they cannot. The twisting feeling of my stomach became a full-on lurch. Visions of my life at home flashing before my eyes as if on a projector screen. My dorm room, messy and cramped, but filled with laughter and all-nighters. A year's worth of independence. Brian with his boyish smile and crooked front tooth. On our third date, he had asked before he had kissed me, and he brushed the hair out of my face. Mom and Dad, all of our many battles contrasting against how fiercely they loved me, how proud they were of every accomplishment. I can't leave, I continued. Not once, I'm past the stones. Her grin faltered, though I suspected that was only for my benefit. Despite her compelling performance, empathy wasn't a look that she wore well. No, she confirmed. You cannot. Why? I snapped, stumbling backward, away from them. The two creatures to my left moved toward me, tension rippling through their taut bodies. Why do I have to go back? It's your home, she answered calmly, despite the hint of hysteria escalating to my voice. It's where you belong. Then why did you take me away? Why did you give me to my parents in the first place? She sighed, a wrinkled hand raising a rest on one of their shoulders. They're a powerful species. I'm sure you've seen evidence of that. Unlike any other being on this earth, unfortunately, they're ill-equipped to take care of their young. In the past, they lived alongside humans. They had an understanding with the local tribes in the area. The humans raised their young, 
and they offered them protection. When I found them, there were only a handful left. You tricked my parents. You preyed on their desire for a child. That's sick. My heart quivered like a rabbit in my chest. The creatures sensed my panic. One opened its mouth and let out a garbled roar. It seemed pleading, pained. Pity cooled the rising tide of my anger. At least until Miss Danby opened her mouth again. Normally, they can't keep them out of the rain so long. Your family did an admirable job with you. My fist curled on my side. I could feel the newfound power that resided within them. It pulsed, begging to be released. I imagined grabbing the old widow by the collar and darting off into the trees, sinking my teeth into her skin. Bang. The noises of the forest came to an unsettling halt as these sound echoed off the tall trees surrounding us. I looked between the creatures in confusion before my gaze fell on Miss Danby. Her eyes were wide, panicked. Looking down, a gaping hole in her chest leaked blood down her torso. Behind her, my father trained his gun on one of the monsters. In a flash, they turned to him, screeching. One pounced, pinning him to the ground. The other knelt beside Miss Danby, warbling as it tried to cover her wound. The shock rooted me in place, at least until one of them emerged from the stone barrier. And then another... They darted off to join the battle. Dad! He screamed as claws dug into his shoulder, sinking through them like warm butter. In a flash, the long black arm jerked back, pulling his shoulder along with it. Red exploded from the wound. Sinew stretched and did its best to hold on, until my father's arm was separated completely. I stumbled forward in a daze. Stop! I begged them. Please stop. The creature at Miss Danby's side rose to face me. I cowered as it stepped closer, the warmth of tears stinging my bony cheeks. Don't let them kill him. I'll come with you. I'll do anything. It tilted its head. Despite the fact they didn't speak, I knew intrinsically that it could understand me. If only I could say the same about it. It glanced back at my father now surrounded by four of them. There was so much blood. Too much. I couldn't tell what they had done to him. His screams had grown quiet, weak. A sob shook my shoulders. The creature moved like a flash of lightning bursting through the sky. It wrapped its willowy arms around me, scooping me up against its chest. No, I gasped, beating my fists against it. Put me down. It turned and darted off into the forest, away from the rocks. It moved quickly, weaving with expert precision through trees and over stones. If the others noticed, if the others followed, we had enough of a head start to outrun them. Rain still leaped out from the sky above, but would soon end. The creatures wouldn't be able to leave. Not for me, not for another year. When we emerged out into the darkened street, I found my mother sitting on the dented hood of the car. It was running somehow, pulled back and away from the trunk that it had slammed into. 
She had her hand raised to her mouth, chewing anxiously at her nails, her eyes strained red. The creature lowered me to the ground and my mother gasped as she noticed me. She rushed towards us, only to falter as she got close enough to see the creature up close. I covered the distance instead, stooping to throw my arms around her neck. Your father, she said, is he gone? I mumbled, sniffling. He's gone. She nodded and stepped back from me. Get in the car, Hallie. I stepped forward and then paused. The creature stayed a put behind me, watching wearily as its daughter left it for the second time, this time on its own volition. I met its purple eyes, glossy and filled with grief. I knew that it wouldn't be bad to chase me down in the coming years. The same couldn't be said for the others. Whatever this creature was, whatever I was, it loved me. Come with us, I said. I could hear my human mother sucking in a startled breath behind me. She didn't argue though, didn't question it. She of course loved me too. The creature hesitated, glancing back at the forest that was its home, taking in the chirps and warbles and the chilly, refreshing breeze. This was where it belonged, and we both knew it. That's what made it so surprising when it stepped forward toward the car. We packed into the back seat, huddling together as my mom pulled back onto the highway. The rain had slowed into an unenthusiastic drizzle, a purple-pink sunrise peeked over the skyline. I smiled at the creature next to me and reached out to grab its hand. My family was going home. Thank you all for listening to today's stories. I hope you enjoyed them. I would also like to reiterate a large thank you to today's sponsors. HelloFresh. To get started, go to hellofresh.com slash creepscast12 and use code creepscast12 for 12 free meals including free shipping. And Audible. Take advantage of today's incredible limited time offer. Go to audible.com slash creepscast. I hope you have a great day or night wherever you may be in this world. And as always, stay creepy.